Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, or the tribe, fiat currency, and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
All right, good evening, all. Just had to get all them buttons pushed and all that stuff. I Actually, I was looking for a song. I couldn't find it. Oh, well. <clears throat> this is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Boys Radio Network. It is still September 14th, 2015. And uh, it's about mm, 10 minutes after 8 p.m. 800-932-1980 is the call-in number. It's toll-free, 800-932-1980. You want to call in? There you go. You want to get into the chat room? That's where all the cool kids are hanging out. And plus, you get breaking news. Well, breaking ABRN news in the chat room. You're the first to know stuff and things in there. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Look for the chat link. You'll see it. Click it. And uh, off you go. You're in there. It's real easy. If you want to contact me, you can use Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. All right. There you go. There you have it. There's the ways. Other than you go to the website and, of course, the... Uh, Uh, what do you call it? The email is there. Okay. <laughs> Boy, I'm I'm looking at a headline here, and I'm like, "What are you kidding me? Really?" <laughs> Gosh. Wait. Here's the headline: More kids are getting drunk on hand sanitizer. Okay. Look, man. Maybe it's time just to get us some, you know, alcohol vending machines, huh? Come on! You know, I mean, look, if the kids are going to start drinking uh, hand sanitizer, I mean, I thought it was bad enough seeing, you know, winos drinking Sterno, man. But come on, hand sanitizer? I don't even like putting that crap on my hands. And kids are drinking it? Boy, we got, <laughs> I mean, we, we got some problems here, man. Problems, I tell you. That, that, you know, hey, generally speaking, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm seldom surprised by anything I read anymore, but, okay, kids drinking hand sanitizer to get drunk? More kids are doing it now, not just the kids that used to be doing it. No, 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 now there's more kids. Wow. This, this... <laughs> Do we have a problem? I mean, really? Do we? I think we might. So what's the solution? Well, ban hand sanitizer. Obviously, there you go. I don't know. Maybe somebody might want to ask the kids. Uh, uh-oh. See? Now, here you go. See? Here I have a problem when I don't need a problem. Uh... And I'm going to have to take care of it while I try to talk to you. It's a good thing I look at things sometimes. And I might not be able to even fix it. So that's the beauty of it. 
you know, that's the real fun part is I may not even actually be able to fix it. I don't know. And it's, uh, you know, it is an AVR2 thing, too. Uh, let's say that and do that. And. All right, let's see if this works. Yes, well, okay. It did. Okay, so we're back now. And enough about hand sanitizer. That's just disturbing. How about this? Now, by the way, I want to remind some of you out there that it is, in fact, September 14th. We're like halfway through this month, okay? Isn't, wasn't uh, today or tomorrow supposed to be the, it? Anyway, well, never fear. The end may be coming, and it may be near. And it may not be an asteroid or an earthquake or anything like that. It could just be the simple meltdown of the, you know, all the markets in the world. <laughs> no problem there, huh? And there might be. Anyway, here's a headline. This is exactly what the early phases of a market meltdown look like. There's so much confusion out there. On the days when the Dow goes down by several hundred points, lots of people pat me on the back and tell me that I nailed it my call for the second half of this year. But on the days when the Dow goes up by several hundred points, I get lots of people contacting me and telling me that they are confused because they thought the stock market was supposed to go down. Well, the truth is that if there is going to be a full-blown market meltdown, we would expect for there to be wildly dramatic swings in the market, both up and down. A perfect example of this is what we experienced during the financial crisis of 2008. Nine of the 20th largest single-day declines in stock market history happened that year. But nine of the 20 largest single-day increases in the stock market also happened that year. You know what that's called? A money pump. Look, folks, I don't know how many different ways people have to explain this to you. I certainly hope you don't have money in any of these markets, any of these paper markets. Look, gold and silver, physical gold and silver, is something you don't buy thinking, well, you know, next week or next month I'm going to cash these suckers in and I'm going to make a lot of money. No, that's why you gamble. See, that's why you play the markets, the paper markets, because you have that ability. If you time everything right and everything goes right for you, you can make a lot of money. And you can do it relatively quick. Of course, if you guess wrong or things go wrong, you can lose everything pretty quick, too. But this is the thing. Nine of the 20 largest single-day declines, 9 of the 20th largest single-day increases. Wow. Isn't that odd that you would have 9 of 20 of both? Kind of like a pump, one stroke up, one stroke down, one stroke up, one stroke down. Okay, here's how it works. So, I've got a billion dollars. All right? Because it's got to be a lot of money. Why do you think these guys manage funds? That's what they call them, funds. It's where thousands of people all pile their money into there. 
And then you have the managers who manage those billions of dollars. Okay, so I got a billion dollars, and I go to the stock market, and I say, okay, let's see. I'm going to pick this stock. So I start buying it. Doesn't matter what the price is, because the more I buy, the price is going to go up. Because I got a billion dollars. This isn't just a couple of bucks I'm buying here. I'm buying lots. As everybody sees. Wow. Look at that. The price is going up because lots is being bought. Lots is, ooh, we better get on board. We better get on board. So then, once I see, and you can watch all this, the trading volume and all that good stuff, you watch that. And once you see that everybody's caught on to the frenzy and started buying... And the price is going up and everybody's happy because they're buying and it's going up and it's wonderful. You stop buying. Okay? You start buy you stop buying and you start selling to these people. That's right, these buyers. Oh, you start selling. Well, guess what you just did? You pumped the price up all by yourself. Because you've got a billion dollars. And you've got so much money, you can go in there and you can actually manipulate a stock to make it go up. And everybody wants those, so everybody buys them. And once everybody starts buying them, you start selling. So you started buying low and started selling high. See, this is how you make money. Buy low, sell high. You remember that? and you stick to that, you're always going to make money. The money pump. And they're doing it. They're manipulating it. It's not a real market. See, in a real market, oh, people would get the news that, oh, hey, this company's got a new product coming out. Ooh, let's buy into that company because when the new product comes out, I think it's going to start making more money. So everybody gets the word out, and they start buying and buying, and then the new product comes out, the news comes out, and everybody starts buying more. And See, that's a real market. But there's no new products. There's no production. There's nothing. None of these companies are really producing much of anything except stock market. Anyway, on Tuesday, the Dow surged several hundred points. There was much celebrating in the mainstream media over this, but what they failed to realize was that this was another big red flag. And we saw this volatility carry over. And on Wednesday, the Dow was up 171 points early in the day before ending down 239. By themselves, those two days don't mean a whole lot. The key is to look at them in context. And the context we have already witnessed the most dramatic stock market crash since the last financial crisis. There will be more days when the stock market absolutely plummets, and there will be more days when it absolutely soars. No stock market crash in U.S. history has ever gone in just one direction continuously. There are always giant waves of momentum that causes panic selling and panic buying. Folks, you know, I got to stop reading this article because this individual is reading this whole thing as though this was a real market. And all this is is a money pump. Okay? These aren't real 
surges and real plunges. This is them taking a dying market and pumping out as much other people's money as they possibly can. And then when they run out of all your money, it'll all crash and burn. But you'll be broke. You'll be finished. You'll be done. It's time to get out of the market. Unless you've got enough, you know, money to where you can run the pump. And I don't think anybody listening really does. So I get out. Try to protect what you've got. If you've lost stuff, hey, lick your wounds. Be happy you didn't lose it all because you're fixing to. It isn't a real market. It is absolutely manipulated. All the ups, all the downs is just a money pump. The elitists are taking everything they can get. And they're taking it from you if you're playing in their pool. Their money pool. Alright, let's move on to something. uh, Well, I find it even more disturbing. I'm not sure how to even say this word. Neonicotoids. I've heard it said different. I wish I could remember how, but I don't know if they said it right either. Well, they're uh, nicotoids or neonicotoids or whatever. Devastating effects are far more reaching than you may know. Uh Uh-oh. Yes, the... uh, Neonicotoids. Neonicotoids. Let's try that. That'll work for me. Neonicotoids. Okay? That's how I'm saying it. So there we go. The pesticides linked to the mass die-off of bees are now found in stream and well samples across the United States. These widely used pesticides aren't just killing the bees and butterflies, they're also killing insects, which are critical to the food chain. But what are they doing to us? U.S. regulatory agencies set that they say are safe limits for uh, neocot residues on our food including baby foods. But, as Scott Hoffman Black, executive director of the Erxes Society, points out, no one is studying the long-term potentially carcinogenic effect this has on humans. Well, this is not good, is it now? No. So... More trouble, folks. More pesticides. All right. Here's this article I've been wanting to get to on sedition. Okay. Sedition. What is sedition? I'm reading this. According to the dictionary, it is conduct or language inciting rebellion against the authority of a state. Insurrection, rebellion. On the surface, it seems that few higher calls of conduct can be attained by the citizen. Now, some will be put back and say to themselves, what does that statement exactly mean? Well, it's simple. 
America was created as a country out of a revolution. Remember your history, or did you get your education at one of those government schools? Lest you forget, all those stuffy, white, privileged founding fathers were rebels. They were enemies of the crown, and if caught, would be hung, or hanged, actually. So, it is possible that sedition is a proper and moral action. Well, it is, unless you're the government. If you are one of the mindless cheerleaders of uh, for old and glorious, you might think I'm disloyal. What kind of test would you want to use to judge if I'm wearing a red, wi- a red, a white hat, or if it has uh, has a blue U? All seems so confusing. So why not let some of those original revolutionaries settle the matter? You heard of them. They called themselves the Federalists. The little gem of legislation used way back in 1798 was a lawyer's dream, known as, what else, the Sedition Act. Yep, no fooling, read it, read it in its entirety. An act for the punishment of certain crimes against the United States. In any event, Section 2 might just be the segment that might earn my red badge of courage. Section 2. And be it further enacted that if any person shall write, print, utter, or publish, or shall cause or procure to be written, printed, uttered, or published, or shall knowingly and willingly assist or aid in writing, printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writings against the government of the United States or either House of Congress of the United States or of the President of the United States with intent to defame the said government or either House of said Congress or the said President or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute, or to excite against them, or either of them, the hatred of the good people of the United States, or to stir up sedition within the United States, or to excite any unlawful combinations therein for opposing or resisting any law of the United States, or any act of such president of the United States, done in pursuance of any such law or of the powers in him vested by the Constitution of the United States or to resist, oppose, or defeat any such law or act or to aid, encourage, or abet any hostile designs of any foreign government nation against the United States, their people, or their government, then such person being therefore convicted before any court of the United States having jurisdiction thereof shall be punished by a fine not exceeding $2,000 and by imprisonment not exceeding two years. Only two years? Could could do that standing on my head. $2,000? <laughs> would Federal Reserve notes do? Pocket change. Or would you accept a check? 
Where can I sign? You see, scandalous and malicious while being the truth still would be a crime. Naturally, because such disgraceful behavior would be against the state. The crown was replaced with the state. And all those wonderful little Hamiltonian libertarians would protect you. For they promised to be nice. So feel fine. You are a good boy. When you do as you're told, we all know that the Bill of Rights was an unlawful price to pay for constitutional ratification. But before you think the party in power just wanted to keep those terrible Jeffersonian Democrats from wearing the crown, (laughs) you missed the real point. With the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, the age of central government power was restored. The demise of the Articles of Confederation meant that the 1776 revolution was fought for only a brief and temporary relief. Move up to World War One. And the progress in the sedition under the enlightened Wilson. Well. When we come back. We'll go through what Wilson did. Which is the Sedition Act. And then we'll get to the Patriot Act. And we'll see. That not a whole much has changed when it comes to. Uh. You know, this is the point. The point is we think that, oh man, the Patriot Act, worst thing ever. These guys are so rotten and dirty and corrupt, it's it's amazing. Well, hey, the point is they've been dirty and rotten all along. All along. All along, since the Federalists. Since Hamilton. Hamilton was a creep. He was He was a usurper. He was working for the crown. He was a banker. This guy was scum of the earth. Of course, he's, you know, he'd now be the moral icon of the nation, uh, you know, given what we were like. But, I mean, hey, they have been corrupt and against the people the whole time. We'll take a break. We'll be back.
have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family. And in the evening too But every time 
time you leave me, I get mad with you. Well, I'm told I lie for you if you want me to But really don't believe your love is true I don't throw down I'm almost level with the ground Oh, I feel like this when my baby can't be found Oh, well, I'm throw down I'm almost level with the ground This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steph, and you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still September 14th, 2015. It's 839 out here on the Pacific Time Coast, 800-8932-1980. That's the call-in number. Go to the chat room located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. Go on in there. You can participate in the show or just lurk about. Or just chat with the other folks. You can also contact me directly through Yahoo Instant Messenger. A-V-R-N Talk is my screen name. All right. Let's see. Where were we? Oh, yes. Sedition and World War One. Wonderful. Oh, yes. I believe he won a... Um, Peace Prize, too. Didn't he, Wilson? And didn't he also promise not to get the United States into World War I? Yeah, he did. But anyway, he lied. Section 3 of uh, his deal is this. Whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully make or convey false reports or false statements with intent to interfere with the operation or success of the military or naval forces of the United States or to promote the success of its enemies or shall willfully make or convey false reports or false statements or incite insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States or shall willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment service of the United States or shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or the Constitution of the United States or the military or naval forces of the United States 
or shall willfully display the flag of any foreign enemy, or shall willfully urge, incite, or advocate any curtailment of production, or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts or things in this section enumerated, and whoever shall by word or act support or favor the cause of any country with which the United States is at war, or by word or act oppose the cause of the United States therein, shall be punished by a fine of not more than $10,000, or in prison for not more than 20 years, or both. Wow. Now we must avoid disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language. Guess they want me to stop writing. Maybe voices like mine are having an effect. Now we're up to two decades in the re-education camps and five times the fine. That should get everyone to go with the program, right? Well, finally, the Patriot Act must be the answer. If that original Sedition Act had the intent to defame or to bring the government into contempt or disrepute or to excite the hatred of the American people against the United States, then the Patriot Act will just make you love and worship the high priests of your federal benefactors. You should be up to speed on all the goodies of protection that this latest version for induced loyalty brings you? The question that most want to avoid and refuse to face is that the very government that, de that demands your total submission has but one central person purpose, its own survival. The reality of ridiculous charges and dubious definitions and offense of sedition against citizens that differ with the policies of government when they conflict with the Bill of Rights protections can hardly be considered a proper function of the state. The basis for legitimate authority requires consent of those governed, those who seek to inflict arbitrary demands which they themselves are exempt from lawful restraints, are the fitting and illegitimate seditious manipulators of a political system designed essentially to control citizens. They command, you obey, that's their program. Your duty is to dissent. For this is the year of revoami, whatever that is. Ex exercise sedition with pride. Your government has made the practice necessary. Well, I have to agree. I mean, honestly, folks, really. I, I really do have to agree. But let's move on. We got things here. All right. Well, yes, scientists fear a robotic weapons. Fear robotic weapons. More than a thousand scientists, including Stephen Hawking, have called for a ban on developing artificial intelligence for military use and to build robotic weapons. <laughs> yeah, they're probably 10 years, 20 years behind because they're already built. Remotely piloted drones have placed a controversial role in military operations by countries like America. However, in an open letter, the group said technology could end up being developed without human intervention, meaning, well, robots building robots. Look, folks, you've seen all the horror movies, right? Haven't you seen any, uh, I don't know. Hey, I know one, Battlestar Galactica. Now, I, I've been watching the 1978 version, which is pretty cheesy, but I like it. 
And it's not so gruesome as the new one. But if you want gruesome, you know, the real dark, gruesome future, well, the the new, I guess it's only, what, five years ago they made it, Battlestar Galactica? Yeah, watch that one. It's pretty gruesome if you're into the whole robot domination thing and and how bad it can really get. Oh, yeah. Robots making robots. Or you could go watch Terminator for a good time. Hey, how about this? This is good. After the the sedition thing, you know. In Berlin. Now, Germans are getting tired of being overrun by foreigners, especially Muslims. But their government doesn't care. Their government allows it to happen. And their government is also pressuring businesses like Fedbook. That's right. Fedbook pledged Monday to combat racist hate speech. Now listen, racist hate speech on its German language network amid a spike in xenophobic comments online as Germany faces an unprecedented influx of refugees. Now, racist and hate speech, how does that equal xenophobic content uh, comments? Because xenophobic means you're, you're, you're scared of other people. Okay? Well, just because you're xenophobic doesn't mean... So, am I not allowed to be xenophobic? Is that it? In Germany, you're not allowed to be xenophobic? Or are we not allowed to be xenophobic here, too? I mean, that's like saying you're not allowed to be claustrophobic. Oh, wait, we're not allowed to be homophobic, are we? So, I guess xenophobic... It's like homophobic, except applied to everybody. And you're not allowed to do that. Right? Or or right? Is that true or what? Well, let's see here. The U.S. social media network said it would encourage counter-speech and step-up monitoring of anti-foreigner commentary. You know, anti-foreigner commentary? Now, is that racist? With Germany facing a record influx of refugees and a backlash from the far right, meaning from the people of Germany, social medias like Fedbook have seen an upsurge of hateful, xenophobic commentary. Fedbook said it would work with organizations in Germany to, quote, develop appropriate solutions to counter xenophobic and racism and to represent this online. Now, Moss, who has recently said Fedbook should not become a fun fair for the far right, said new measures to combat xenophobia online could be introduced from now to the end of the year, if possible. The objective is to improve the management of user reports against xenophobic content, the minister said. Fedbook has urged its users to report offensive postings and announce a partnership with a group of voluntary self-monitoring of multimedia service providers, 
SM. Opposition Green Party co-chief Katrin Goner-Eckard several days ago read out in a YouTube clip a litany of verbal attacks that had been posted on her Fedbook page and urged the company to finally ensure that such hatred and filth is deleted. She said, freedom of expression is important, but has its limits when it comes to agitation to commit violence or sickening hate speech. Ooh, sounds like the sedition crowd is at it again, huh? Telling you, folks, things work in cycles, and we are in a bad cycle. We are. We're in a bad cycle, and it looks to me like we're rolling back into the, uh, you know, the early 30s there. Or maybe the 20s, although the 20s were kind of rolling pretty good. But, uh, yeah, I'm having trouble with my internet. Not my internet so much as my, this stupid, I, I really don't like Chrome. But on this computer, it's the only thing I can use. Don't ask. <laughs> Just, you know, believe me. But, uh, you know that guy O'Keefe? Yeah, the guy with the camera that sneaks into places and gets, uh, he was the one that did the, uh, oh, Obama's little group where they, you know, were rigging the elections and signing up whole football teams. Yeah, them. Well, he's got a new one. Now he went to the uh, the Hillary uh, campaign. And they're all laughing and joking about breaking the rules, the election law rules, you know. And uh, saying things like, well, apologize. Don't ask permission. Yep, that's their attitude is, hey, better to apologize than to ask permission. Because, you know, if you ask permission, well, somebody could say no. But if you apologize, well, everybody's got to forgive you because, well, after all, you said you're sorry. And, well, if they don't, if they don't accept your little apology, they're being hateful. Oh, man. I think that's where we're going here. Isn't that doesn't that seem the way Hillary's running her campaign? Oh gosh, you know, I don't have to apologize for anything because what I did was permissible. And then a day later, oh yeah, I'm real sorry and uh you know, uh, I probably should have made a different decision and uh you know, and uh yeah, and uh what? You know what? I don't know who told her it's permissible, but it's not permissible. I read the law. It's not permissible what she did. I'm going to bring this up again because what Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton keeps getting out there saying what she did was permissible. It's not. Okay, what she did is a crime. A crime. You are only allowed to use a private server for government business. If 
the government server is not available. And for that period of time only, and when you get done and get back to the server that you're supposed to be on, you take all that private email stuff and you submit it to the government so they can store it properly. This is not what she did. This is not what she did at all. She just decided, I'm going to use a private server. I don't want to use that. I don't want to use that because then it would be public records. Anybody could get it, and I don't want people seeing this. This is secret. Oh, but wait, I don't have any secret stuff on here. Oh, no, I don't have any classified things. Oh, wait, is that classified? Oh, well, okay, just a few things that are classified, but it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't have anything to be apologizing for. Well, although I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that, and I should have thought... You know, how many more decades? Well, hopefully she won't be alive decades, but how much longer is the American people really going to keep believing Hillary Clinton or anything she says or buying her line of crap? She has been a criminal for 40 years. You think she's going to stop now? She thinks she's queen of the United States or something. You really think she's going to change her ways once she gets in the White House and gets to be the real queen? I don't think so. Well, let's see here. I've got a few minutes to kill, and I have a black screen. So... Oh, hey, I do have kind of an announcement. Well, it is an announcement. We, uh, those of you out there that, you know, listen to AVR, know that, you know, on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, we basically, uh, although I got to say, you know, Sundays we do have one live show on uh, AVR 2. Pastor Ernie Sanders does a live hour, and... uh, We're going to have, on Saturdays, it's going to officially start in October, uh, you know, the first Saturday in October, but I'm running a test this coming Saturday of a new show on AVRN2 on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern, which would be 8 a.m. Pacific, Okay. Uh, 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 uh. So, the show, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, and I don't think I'm going to be able to. I'm trying to also open this thing back up, and it's not. So, it, it's, uh, I forget what the name of it is, and nobody can help me because, see, I don't have any internet right now because, uh, well, I'm going to start hitting this computer with a hammer here pretty quick. It's really starting to irritate me, but... I forget the name of it. Maybe I can get it back here. I don't think so, but... uh Oh. All right. Well, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on the name. But, hey, you want to tune in Saturdays? I'll have more information tomorrow. It's only Monday. We got plenty of time. 
And uh, seeing as how I don't have anything else to say and I don't have any other things to read or anything like that, I'm just going to run the music and we'll hope to get this all squared away for Dean to come back on because we got a whole nother hour coming up. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family. going up, homes being foreclosed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to 
wichitahomeless.com or simply call 
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still September 14th, 2015. It's Monday evening, about 10 minutes after 9 p.m. And knowing that it's 9 p.m., you must realize that's Monday night, the second hour. Anywho... You can call in 800-932-1980, 932-1980, that's an 800 number, that is toll free. You can also go to the chat room. It's located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And uh, you'll see the chat link, easy enough to get in there. So... There you go. Anyhow, let's see. Uh, oh, if you want to contact me directly, Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is ABRN Talk. Of course, you do have to have Yahoo to get me there. Well, let's see here. Oh, really? Okay. Well, we'll we'll see about that. And uh, uh, what I mean by that is I thought that uh, my co-host for this evening, which is most every Monday evening, was... Missing in action, perhaps committed suicide somewhere, uh, but apparently he is now back from the dead and with us. Welcome, Dean. Well, What's Frank, your excuse how... and where's your note? <laughs> I'm sending it now. But, um, you know, folks, it's been a tough day. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> well, all the best excuses start out that way, Dean. Yeah, well, um, okay, so I guess what I really want to talk about is the Persian War of 2035. I think you talked about that last week. Yes, but it gets a little deeper this week. Now, folks, everybody that's making money on armaments is planning on having a, a, a world war huge. Um in 2035, and they have to do this in order to balance the budget, their budgets, more money in the bank, right? And so, Frank, I sent you the music. And um, now it's interesting because it's 2015, and if we go back 100 years to 1917, when Woodrow Wilson is forming... Uh, the 14-point plan. What did you did you go to public school? That's only 98 years. Okay, victory without peace. This is with Germany. It's World War One. There are 14 points. Now, people consider this 14-point treaty. It's called peace without victory. 
as the same as the Iranian uh, treaty that we face today. And in fact, the 1917 deal had one point, and that was the creation of the League of Nations. Oh. <clears throat> Dean, a little after World War One, wasn't there a guy named Chamberlain who said, peace at all costs? Exactly. It was a playoff of the word peace without victory. And so what you see, and when Wilson went in to get this vote from the Senate, all of a sudden the Bolsheviks in Russia released all the side agreements, the one that Japan was going to get a chunk of China, how Italy was going to get a chunk of Austria-Hungary. And so that's what they're facing today and threatening in the House, that they are going to expose all these side agreements that Obama, President Obama, has made with these foreign countries in order to secure peace with Iran without victory. Get it, folks? And one of that point is that Woodrow Wilson had to deal with was the, um, the League of Nations, which was not passed, ladies and gentlemen. That was the one thing that failed because several of the senators, and most importantly, Senator Lodge, Cabot Lodge, opposed it. And they said that we would lose our autonomy, that our military would cease to take commands from the United States electorate, the executive branch, that it would cede all its power to European commanders. And here we are again today with NATO. 100 years. And they are doing the same thing with the NATO command in substituting an artificial intelligence war plan and using this Iranian treaty, Persian, I just got to call it Persian, to, and they have no intention of going through with peace. There's going to be a war either way. And so I have to ask everybody to understand that there are a few alternatives that are available well, to doesn't stop that, this war. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like what Chamberlain was doing? Yes. Is, is Obama the modern Chamberlain? No. But everybody he's working with hasn't changed over in Europe. And in fact, Queen Elizabeth is still the major drug dealer on the black market. And it's, Chamberlain was advocating perpetual war. And that's what we are uh, looking at tonight. And so, folks, would you believe that in 1918, we will also have a major scandal come up in the VA 
administration. With the building of veteran hospitals, four times, sometimes 10 times the amount of what it would cost. They were just bilking out and they weren't giving services. And this is what almost sunk Harding. In fact, it did. It was the scandal in which they used to uh, poison him and make it look like he had a heart attack in San Francisco so that they could put Coolidge in office and go through with the war machine for World War II. After they drain Germany to the point where they can't take any more. So we don't need to look any further than our own history books to understand what's going to happen today. We see the United, uh, the Supreme Court is ready to move on the electoral vote. If we, they need to have a candidate that cannot win the popular vote because if there is a candidate that will sweep the vote, then there is no electoral closeness in the race. Hence, they must get rid of Donald Trump at all costs, which is very easy because they can prosecute him on his university and for Solomon Bryant, who was one of the phantom kids that he employed in the Trump Tower basement, which the entire Senate knows about, because I hand-delivered five notices to them. So he's gone in the mud. So what we're going to see now is the horse race, neck and neck, so that the final vote, which is going to be rigged in Florida, Ohio, and New York one more time, will permit the president to be selected by the Supreme Court of the United States. And, of course, what we see here in these debates and these polls, well, you know, it comes down to the old question of, you know, did you ask the right question? And these polls don't even go into the heartland. They have no access to go into the the wheat fields. And, you know, in 1964, by 1964, all of our major wheat was being sold and distributed by five agricultural combines. So there is a major monopoly with wheat and corn right now, folks. There is no bargaining. There are no no uh, way to negotiate the prices. We are held hostage in the agrochemical department of the United States. We are under siege as a people that vote, if you haven't figured it out. Frank, what do you well, got what do you uh, What do you think we should do about it? I mean... Well... There are a few parties that are being exed out of this deal. And that would be the Metropolitans, the Orthodox religion of Christianity that was 
defeated by the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople in 300 A.D. A little bit past there. So, folks, what you really want to look at is if these metropolitans, which control the whole Eastern Orthodox Christian movement from Russia to Africa to the Himalayas to the Pacific Ocean, if they unite with Mecca, Islam, Russia and Israel will have been negated in their strength to cause these wars. Because indeed, it is coming from Russia and Israel. They are the ones who are profiting, folks, from the black market that is being generated. It is not so much about the war, but it is about the black market in food, weapons, nuclear weapons, health. All right, folks? So, yes, that's where we are, Frank, in that we need a new, call it an error factor, an errata, in the fact that in 1917, the Metropolitans weren't given the opportunity to exercise their authority. They were held in check by the Germans, but they aren't held in check right now because they have room to breathe. Notice that Germany has their hands around the Metropolitans' necks right now with Greece. Isn't it funny how the more things change, the more things stay the same, Frank? Well, yeah, but here we come, and you're saying Trump's in the mud, and uh, so who's winning? Are you still sticking with Hitlery? No, it's not. It's a peace without victory, Frank. It's the same thing. We don't win by choosing war, and we don't win by choosing Bush and or Hillary. We have to go with a popular candidate, and yeah, we can only get that popular candidate if, in fact, we support the Metropolitans. Well, and who's we, that going to be, though? I mean, because, you know, what you describe is Donald Trump. But, of course, you say, no, they have the goods on Donald Trump. I mean, at this point, though, Dean, doesn't everybody have the goods on each other? Yes, but we need someone who can clearly take the race. And you know what? There are so many people in America can, that can do that. And with that, we have to go to our music. I hope you got it from my Yeah, email. yeah, even though you were tardy and late and, you, you know, all that. And so and I had no I, note, I might add. Uh, that's right. It just the blue note. And I want to dedicate this song tonight. As you know, we've been dedicating for the last six weeks to Jennifer Garner, who's divorcing the schmuck 
Megan Fox, who, you know, hey, she just wants some freedom. And so tonight, I want to dedicate another romantic song, because I know Frank has been killing me with these R&B songs. So I said, tonight, let me give it back. Let me go back on track so I can make Frank happy, but most of all, make Vanessa Williams happy. Oh, boy. Because she was invited to judge the Miss America pageant after Frank and I had debated the fact that she had lost her crown in a war without victory on ethnic hate. Ethnicity hate. So... Before thousands of people. Oh, in the can I just American run it before pageant. you get too politically correct? There is only one race, one human race. And so I want to dedicate this song to Vanessa Williams, who was apologized in front of everyone for the Miss America pageant in requesting the crown to be returned for private pictures which should have never been displayed, which weren't even that racy, which probably, Vanessa, you're probably glad you had them now because you looked a million dollars and you're worth a million dollars, and I just happen to have Wednesday nights available, and you are divorced. So with that, Frank, I say hit it for Vanessa Williams. And we'll gamble on you, baby. Thank you. 
again, Dean? Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC in use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still September 14th, Monday, 2015. It's about 37 minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. 800-932-1980 is the call in. You can go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com and you can have uh, get to the chat room there. You'll find the uh oh that's out. There we go. You'll have the uh chat link. Click that, you'll be in there. You can also contact me directly through Yahoo Instant Messenger. Screen name is AVRN Talk. All right. Well, we'll bring Dean up. And Dean, uh, how did you sneak in there? Oh, wow. Say that again, Frank. How did you sneak in there? Eat on your own time, buddy. You're already late. You're already in trouble. You know? Well, you know what, folks? I got caught. <laughs> I was at the Sidewalk Cafe. That was Marcy Gordon live. And uh, <laughs> Marcy Gordon, Marcy Gordon, yeah. And you know, it's always fun to have a radio show at midnight and <laughs> run from the bars over to the microphone and leave the comfort of a nice, warm bar and beautiful women. So what is the weather like in uh, New York City this evening? Is it nippy? It's cool or what? I oh, mean, you it's got about, the you got the about, poop in town, don't you? Yeah, it's about seventy degrees. It's perfect. Oh my God, the weather's perfect. I was, you know, go out and bowl a few frames at the Brooklyn Bowl. So, so let's. Get, no, no, no. Wait a minute. Now, a little current news. You got the poop in town over there. You're in New York City. What's the place like? Is it gone mad? Is it a police state more than normal? Uh, you know, listen, I work with a 70 year old stripper in 42nd street and we're doing a documentary and on Times Square. And what they would like to do is lock down the place with the moral squad, like they did in Hollywood with Creel. And I, and I just, and I have to bring this back. Because we're going, they want to install the moral police just like they did in Hollywood. Okay, folks? So I, I bring this up to you because at the same time they were doing the moral police in Hollywood, this is when Fatty Arbuckle was so fat and he jumped on this young 14 year old girl at a party. It wasn't rape. What he did was he burst her appendix appendix because he was so fat <laughs> God. and he got so high on cocaine because cocaine was two dollars a card now frank will tell you a card is one ounce it's an eight ball and, i wouldn't know okay well but at that point you could get a bag of groceries for 35 cents so here's fatty Charlie Forbes, who is um, the Veteran Affairs Office, he's a real estate construction foreman, is make a buku money, and it's bringing down um, Harding's 
administration. And, and, and this is where you get the teapot dome oil scandal with the Secretary of Navy uh, selling all the naval oil reserves. And then the law prohibiting alcohol. Well, the Justice Department was selling the alcohol out the back door with permits. This was the Harding administration. It's the same thing happening today with the drugs with the Justice Department selling the drugs out the back door. The whole Alaska offshore oil reserves are being auctioned off again. The veteran, instead of building veteran hospitals, now they're selling them, privatizing them. Folks, what goes around comes around. And, you know, and think about the Clintons in the 90s, you know, green as grass from the Arkansas hills. You know, think of them with the swift running whitewater creeks. And here Mrs. Clinton is saying, we got to have a national health care plan. Except for the insurance and pharmaceutical companies combined with the elements of the American Medical Association are going to destroy whatever national health care program that comes on the scene. And that's exactly who's screwing with Obama's national health care plan right now. The insurance and pharmaceutical companies and the AMA. Now, most politics today, today involves minute-by-minute poll-taking, right, Frank? And, and, and they're polling on every conceivable subject well, yeah, that's that's what everybody seems to want now. Is uh, what do the polls say? What is it? How's that tracking? But as politicians and pollsters know, Frank, it's how the question is asked that determines the response. Well, that's right, and and I gotta point people to a book or a uh, I'm not sure if it's online or whatever, but it was written by a, a guy named Frank Lutz, Luntz or whatever, and he works for Fox News during election times. Let me cut in because I want to say, not only do you want to read Frank's law report, but you want to read, quote, an adaptive program for agriculture. This was an outline plan to eliminate farmers and farms. It was detailed and thought out. And it's early as, and it was written in 1962. Okay, wait a minute. Let's stick to, let's just, let's just, before you move on, that book by Frank Lutz, or that information there, is about exactly how he, because he is a pollster. And he basically tells all the stories and all the secrets about how exactly he gets the results the people that hire him want. It's not so much that they actually are going, well, what does everybody think? They are more like, hey, this is what we want the polls to show everybody thinks. And then they make it happen. Right. So in 1962, the Committee for Economic Development gets together. They're comprised of about 75 of the nation's most powerful corporate executives. They represent not only the food industry, but oil and gas, insurance, investment, and retail. They issue a report. It's called An Adaptive Program for Agriculture. 
It outlines a plan to eliminate farmers and farms, folks. It's detailed, thought out. And as early as 1964, congressmen were being told by industry giants like Pillsbury, Swift, General Foods, Campbell's Soup, that the biggest problem in agriculture was too many farmers. All right. Now, only five to eight multinational national companies, for all intents and purposes, are the sole purchasers and transporters of not only American grain, but by 1982, they control 96% of the wheat and the corn. There are no bargains, folks. Okay? We are back in 1917. Now, Frank... What follows 10 years after 1917? Oh, well, that in a couple of years, the dep- the uh, stock market crash. The Depression and World War II. Well, yeah, but World War II is like 10 years after that. No, it's not. It's actually going on. We don't join till 41 because of FDR. Well, yeah, okay. When, okay, okay, okay. But when, in the meantime, the Germans in 1933, are starting to take inroads all through Europe. Well, they didn't exa- They didn't actually start World War II until they attacked Poland, and that was in 39, I believe. But, yeah, they did go into Hungary, but they were, you know, allowed to go. They org- Wait a minute. They were organizing the back row. What do you mean, they were allowed? That meant the banks had Hungary and, and everything else in the Eastern Bloc under their thumbs. Well, what it means is nobody stopped them. I mean, when when they attacked Poland, it was, okay, that's it. Now we've had it. Uh, but before that, everybody was like, oh, wait a minute now. Uh, you can't do that. No, wait. Now we're just taking back what was ours. Don't worry. Okay. You know, that was at least what went on. Now, what goes on in the bankers' back rooms? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what goes on, because Charlie Evan Hughes now is the Secretary of State, just like Clinton, and he's all about war. Okay? That's what's going down, folks. And and so you have this perpetual war, as Gore Vidal says, you know, Charlie Evans Jews. He's going to run, who ran against Wilson, and he was the guy that uh, was supposed to become the president, only he lost the popular vote in California. Okay? So we're, we're seeing the warmongers come out, folks. It's very easy. And anytime you said anything against the war, just like under Bush from 2000 to 2008, you were accused of treason under the Espionage Act of 2001, the Patriot Act. The Espionage Act of 1972 equals the Patriot Act of 2001. It suspended habeas corpus if you contested the war. So don't tell me things aren't going around, that we can't figure out how to change things. Well, it's funny you bring that up, because just in my first hour, I went through a a little bit of a thing where a sedition, the Sedition Act, the first one, was back in the, uh, well... Back in the good old days with the uh, Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Right, and it follows with Lincoln. And then Wilson did another one, 
And yeah, then, so there's been three of them. And then, well, and, and Lincoln just acted by executive order and said, hey, you say anything against this, you're going to jail, including... Under, including under the War Power Act. Including the Maryland legislature, if they have to. You know? Yes, and you know why? Because Baltimore was Jesuit Catholic. And Charlie Evans Hughes was Jesuit Catholic. Now, you have to ask yourself, what organization has been around almost 150 years to be able to recycle all these armament platforms in which to cause wars and to create a war black market? The Roman Catholic Church, Frank. Mm -hmm. It's the only one that's in every position to profit. Well, and guess who's coming to town next week? Well, isn't he already there? No, he's in D.C., maybe. Oh, okay. He's going there first. Oh, is he? Well, yes, check in with the leaders. Right, and then he's going to go to Philadelphia to check in with his banks. <laughs> Where do you think the first Federal Reserve was? Yeah, well, that's true. Philadelphia, man. They were the first bankers. Where they printed the first money with Benjamin Franklin. Your fiat currency, Frank. Well, you know, it's funny because the first capital was New York City. And then Philadelphia. And then... That's where the money got printed. You know why? Because Philadelphia had the coal lines coming in. And coal drove the war machine. Just like the fracking in Pennsylvania is controlling the Pope today. He's got to get that fracking natural gas out. That's why he's coming to town, uh, to D.C. He's demanding that the Congress, after he just paid them through Israel, release the natural gas reserves being held in Pennsylvania for export to Germany and Europe. He's broke, Frank. And he's got to do everything in his power now to get that fracking gas released. Or he can't get the next world war cranked up. And guess what? When he wanted to do this Persian 2035 war with Germany, recycled one more time, because you remember... The Vatican was heavily involved with Germany yep. in World War Two well, and World War One. Wasn't it the last pope they had, the one that just retired, <laughs> that was uh, actually in the, you know, Nazi army? Yes, he also lived out of Munich. So, hey, folks, now that now that you bring all this up, do you think? That might be one of the reasons he just decided to wander off into the sunset rather than die like most popes have the decency to do. Oh, and, uh, no. He was blackmailed by the, uh, by Cardinal Emanuele. Well, totally. you think that's maybe why they wanted him out of there? It's like, look, man, you're a little too much Nazi for us to, uh, you know, pull this off. Oh, no. He's not enough Nazi. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, no. You see, he was going to X the Jesuits out. Oh, can't have that. And he wasn't going to go for the Persian War. He was going to change the whole thing up. Okay, folks? But, 
You know, the Jesuits said, oh, no, we're going for this war. No ifs, ands, or buts. We are too invested. If we don't, we lose our golden doors on the library. So that's why Cardinal Emanuele, you know him as Pope Francis, and boy, is he gaining weight. He must be taking some kind of heart pills. Ah, they got him on the, you know, the uh, Mickey D's uh, fast food traveling diet. Okay, so, so in this, what makes the Persian War of 235 different from World War One and World War Two is the fact that the Metropolitans now are in a position to exercise influence. They now are in a position to tell Putin, you're not going to cause another World War III, a Fourth Reich with Israel, if you think you could cut us out, because Greece is not going along with it this time. Hungary is not going... Funny, all these Hungary... uh, migrants are now running to Germany. It was just like the Hungarian War in 1917 when the Germans swept through. Folks, there is an opportunity, a small window, that if the Eastern Orthodox Church gets up off its hind legs with Islam, it will control all the territories from Mongolia to the Atlantic Ocean in Europe. And they will cancel out the Jesuits and Israel and Moscow's play. Because, you see, there's another factor in here that's different than 1917 and 1939. China is no longer a backwards country. They are in every port now. Their government is in every port. They are not operating out of a, a, a fallen dynasty anymore or a cultural revolution. They are prepared this time, folks. They are not going to be screwed by Europe one more time. Nor is Saudi Arabia going to be redlined like the last time. You know, there was a pipeline that was supposed to go from Saudi Arabia all the way through Syria to the Mediterranean, the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. Yep. Which would have solved the entire world's energy problems without going through the Suez Canal. Oh, think of the money lost by the French. Can't be done. No, we got to shut that down. In fact, Israel is going to shut down the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. Well, what? yeah, the money lost by France. Didn't France have to stop? They were in the middle of building an aircraft carrier, and they had to stop. They couldn't even finish it. They are bankrupt, folks. The Hadrian Collider is nothing but a tunnel for to run trucks with gold bullion in between Switzerland and France so they can double count their gold. We have 
Oh, we have 100 tons of gold in, 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 in Paris. Quick, put it in a truck, run it over to Zurich. <laughs> oh, look, we got 100 tons of bound gold in Zurich. And it's not made of teeth from people we burned in ovens. It's real gold. But, you know, they used the teeth from the people in the ovens because that was 24 karat gold. Yeah, meanwhile, China really does have lots of gold. And they have lots of factories now. Okay, we have no factories. So, you see, this whole League of Nations is not going to work one more time. This whole um, action, uh, I think it was called the the Dearmament Act. Okay, that's the, the, the name of it that they tried to pass through. That's not going to work. They're not going to, the Japanese are not going to get part of China this time. The Italians are not going to get part, well, they didn't get it the first time either in that deal because the United States screwed them on all the deals. But the Veterans Administration is going to go up in flames. Well, now here's the, here's the question before we leave. In this deal, who is the United States fixing a screw this time? Because you know they're going to because they always do every deal the United States government has ever gotten in. They have screwed somebody. So who's it going to be this time? It has to be Germany. They're going to have to tell Germany there will be no Persian war. They're going to have to tell Israel there will be no Persian war. They're going to have to tell Putin there will be no black market. And if they and you know why they're going to be able to say that to them is because the great metropolitans will be saying you want anarchy? Well, we got a lot of Christians who, if you thought a jihad was bad news, wait till the Christians are joined with the Muslims, and you will have a, a what did they call it, when a crusade. Forget the jihad. We're down for the crusade this time. Well, with and that, with that, we are out of time, Dean. We got to go, and... Uh... Dean will be back again next Monday. I'll be back again tomorrow. As always, folks, thanks for listening. Lights out, make your way to the floor. Just dance, got me begging for more. Get down in the county of kings. Hear that music makes you want to sing, want to sing.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. The long-awaited new millennium was finally upon us, and although it was a time of great celebration, the night was also met with apprehension. Now as the next century rapidly approaches, there have been very legitimate concerns about potential Y2K problems and terrorist threats. And John Walsh of America's Most Wanted is in the command center of the New York City Mayor's office. More than 50 state federal agencies are watching and ready to react to any situation. Starting last Wednesday, more than 100 crisis managers began round-the-clock monitoring of New York's critical systems. And we're on the 23rd floor here, so this place is virtually flood-proof and chemical warfare-proof. As the world turned before us, it became clear that Y2K had been overblown. It is too early yet to say that all is well, but so far, as the FAA says, that uh, not a plane was affected. The word came to Washington that all is well. So far, all of the briefings in Washington have told us that everything is green, which means that all computer systems are so far working in matter. The Pentagon is pleased, and it looks like this Y2K turn may turn out to have none of the trouble that anyone predicted. Tonight we celebrate the change of centuries, the dawning of a new millennium. We celebrate the future, imagining an even more remarkable 21st century. So we Americans must not fear change. Instead, let us welcome it, embrace it, and create it. Such a triumph will require great efforts from us all. It will require us to stand against the forces of hatred and bigotry, terror and destruction. It will require us to make further breakthroughs in science and technology, to cure dread diseases, heal broken bodies, lengthen life and unlock secrets from global warming to the black holes in the universe. Although Y2K turned out fine, there was a definite sense of disappointment. The coming of the new millennium seemed anticlimactic. There was no discernible difference between the years 1999 and 2000. As the year passed, this feeling only grew stronger. With a presidential election featuring two of the most boring candidates Americans could remember. There was some excitement as an extremely close election ended in controversy over who had won. But after the dust had settled, the title of Commander in Chief went to this guy. Then it was back to business as usual, with George W. Bush as the most boring president in history. I'm working on some initiatives. We're, uh, one year later, something happened that would change the world forever.
That morning, we watched in horror and disbelief as reality resembled the fiction of a big-budget Hollywood disaster film. The nation was in shock. How did this happen? Who flew those planes? What are we going to do? These were the obvious questions which demanded answers. And we didn't have to wait very long for those answers. Nineteen Muslim extremists had hijacked airliners with box cutters. They targeted major U.S. landmarks to get their message across. We hate America and its freedom. These men had been led by Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the anti-American, radical Islamic group known as Al-Qaeda. Luckily, American troops had already been amassed in and around Afghanistan, the country where bin Laden was hiding in a cave. As the military went to work in Afghanistan, we the people were asked to make some serious changes at home. The war on terror had begun, and with it came the expectation that certain liberties would have to be sacrificed in the name of security. We found ourselves living in a post-9-11 world. As the world changed all around us, a fanatical form of patriotism offered condolence to those mourning the loss of the now distant good old days. Boredom was a thing of the past. Changes came faster than they ever had before. While most people were slapping red, white, and blue stickers on their bumpers, the United States government was busy holding a conference concerned with changes so large that they promised to alter human nature itself. 21st century goals were discussed in preparation for what would come to be known as the Age of Transition. of Transitions was coined by Newt Gingrich in his introduction to the National Science Foundation and Department of Commerce-sponsored workshop on NBIC Technologies. The workshop featured a wide range of participants from governmental and private institutions such as NASA, MIT, Carnegie Mellon University, the Department of Defense, Hewlett-Packard, and many more. It was a chance for experts in the fields of nano, biological, information, and cognitive technologies to discuss their visions for the future alongside government officials. And the goals discussed for the future were nothing short of Promethean, with the key goal stated as enhancing human performance. This in turn would lead to a more efficient societal structure. Indeed, technological convergence was given as the answer to all of the world's now infamous global problems.
displayed out included robotics, cybernetics, artificial intelligence, life extension, brain enhancement, virtual reality, genetic engineering, and even teleportation. Enhancing human performance would require merging human biology with technology. Brain-machine interfaces, or BMIs, would allow the control of machinery with the brain itself. Implantable brain chips would also be able to store information and enhance cognitive function. The ultimate human-machine symbiosis could be to download an actual copy of a person's brain into a supercomputer. This would allow someone to effectively live forever within a computer-generated virtual simulation. More subtle concepts such as using virtual reality in classrooms were also discussed. And of course, the military implications of convergence were quite obvious, as cybernetic enhancement of human performance is inevitable. Achieving these visions requires the decoding and understanding of complex systems. The most important complex system being the human brain. After all, it is the driving force behind human performance. Through the use of bioinformatics, functions of the brain could be understood. Bioinformatics is the process of collecting data from a biological system in order to understand how that system works. The next step in the process would involve biomimetics, the mimicking of those same biological systems. Using this process could enable the development of artificial intelligence. A stated military goal for artificial intelligence is the creation of uninhabited combat vehicles. Removing the pilot would result in a more combat agile aircraft. These machines would also have the ability to maintain themselves. The use of new materials created with nanotech would enable lighter, stronger, high-tech solutions. And of course, the super soldier was also mentioned at this conference. All sorts of new techniques, from pharmaceuticals to robotic exoskeletons, can make this vision come true. It's important to realize that this report clearly states that cybernetic enhancement of human performance is inevitable. With Newt Gingrich proclaiming, those countries that ignore these patterns of change will fall further behind and find themselves weaker, poorer, and more vulnerable to their wiser, more change-oriented neighbors. Mr. Gingrich conservatively calls for a tripling of the National Science Foundation budget. He also mentions George Bush's approval of a $604 million increase towards the nano budget. Convergence is the priority area of importance in implementing the great promise of a new day for the 21st century. One group stands above all others in applauding this funding for convergence. They are known as transhumanists, most prominent among which are professors, philosophers, scientists, and celebrities. The transhumanists see a world of problems just begging to be solved with converging technology. Sometimes we don't see a problem because either 
it's too familiar um, or it's too big. Can't see it because it's too big. The first is death is a big problem. If you um, look at the statistics, the odds are not very favorable to us. So far, most people who have lived have also died. Existential risk, the second big problem. Existential risk is a threat to human survival or to the long-term potential of our species. The third big problem is that life isn't usually as wonderful as it could be. I think that's a big, big problem. There are just those moments that you have experienced where life was fantastic. And you wonder, why, why can't it be like that all the time? Suppose we fixed these things. The transhumanist golden age will kick off with an event known as the singularity. The singularity will occur at the point which artificial intelligence surpasses the capabilities of the human brain. Hello, I am Kimbo. In the near future, you and I are going to be very good friends. Is this really the best if, if we can dream of? Is this, is this the best we can do? Or is it possible to find something a little bit more inspiring? If we want to achieve this, what in the world would have to change? Um, and this is the answer. We would have to change, not just the world around us, but we ourselves. Not just the way we think about the world, but the way we are, our very biology. Human nature would have to change. So we could think of adding on different new sensory capacities and mental faculties. Brain implants have the potential to treat a wide range of conditions in the very near future. A team at the University of Southern California is working on an implant to replace the hippocampus. The chip was tested by interfacing it with the brains of rats. You can improve the response of the rats by about 50 or, or 70 percent, so we do see an improvement in the rat's performance. The next step will be to develop the chip for humans. When you go out to the late 2020s, everybody, almost everybody, will have some amount of non-biological intelligence inside their brains. It's going to happen in this very gradual way, by introducing non-biological intelligence that gradually becomes more and more sophisticated with new versions. As you go to the 2040s, and the non-biological the machine portion of intelligence can be vastly more powerful than the biological portion. The biological intelligence will be pretty trivial at that point, and ultimately that is really where the action is. My personal view is that we are the information, the processing going on in our minds, which means that an uploaded mind would actually be the same person. A computer copy of me would be me. In the same way that we have 100-year-old cars now that are working just as well as they did when they rolled up the production line, insofar as there were production lines back then. Um, similarly, we will, once we become able to implement sufficiently comprehensive repair and maintenance technologies, we'll be able to do the same to the human body. There will be cyborgs. I, I see that as inevitable. But I don't think it's going to solve the problem. In fact, I think it'll just make it worse. Because, I mean, imagine you're a Terran and your next-door neighbour starts going cyborgian. Right? starts adding components and then suddenly the person next door is capable of learning a human language in just by, you know, in seconds. Right? So you would then get a real split 
in human capacities because these cyborgs are no longer human in effect. They'd be sort of superhuman. Now, for the first time in human history, in the information revolution, we can begin to become masters of intelligence. This mastery will offer us unparalleled freedom and opportunities. It has the potential to enrich our lives more than anything we've seen before. All revolutions have winners and losers. This revolution is no exception. But I would say the big losers are the people who say they don't want to get involved. They're the ones who are going to discover that being a little bit out of touch will have some unpleasant consequences. They're going to get uh, a lot of people who do want to upgrade themselves, no question about that. And there'll be commercial interests and political interests supporting those groups. There's a lot of money to be made here, a lot of power, not just in a military sense, but in an everyday sense, uh, in terms of who gets jobs and who doesn't. From cyborgs with very long lifespans to downloading consciousness itself into a machine, Transhumanists say that it is impossible to predict exactly what a post-human will be, but it will indeed be better than human. Such lofty promises are understandably being embraced by many people in search of a better world for everyone. So-called techno-progressives wish to see this technology developed, but also want to make sure that it is equitably distributed throughout all strata of society. Techno-progressives are rivaled by various people, including bioconservatives, those people opposed to the creation of post-humans, and surprisingly, also by experts within the fields of convergence itself. Marvin Minsky, the originator of artificial neural networks and the co-founder of the Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT, has said, Ordinary citizens wouldn't know what to do with eternal life. The masses don't have any clear-cut goals or purpose. No matter how you look at it, the singularity is being promised as the great solution to our 21st century global problems. Thanks to such early work as the Human Genome Project, we will be able to decode DNA itself. Through the use of applied genetics, science will be able to improve the human race. What most people don't realize is that this concept is not new. It is, in fact, a repackaging of what was once called eugenics. The term eugenics means good genes or good origin. It was coined in 1883 by British scientist Sir Francis Galton. He defined eugenics as a moral philosophy to improve humanity by encouraging the best and brightest to breed. Galton was the half-cousin of Sir Charles Darwin, the famous originator of the theory of evolution, which also would come to be known as Darwinism. The three main tenets of Darwinism are the evolutionary transformation from one species into others, natural selection is the cause of divergence in species, the drive behind evolution is the sexual reproductive instinct, and that life is a constant struggle for survival. Galton actually used the theory of evolution to substantiate his new science of eugenics. In his book, Studies on Hereditary Genius, 
he attempted to prove that the aristocratic families of the British Empire were in fact a superior race. The fact that in the struggle for life they had made it to the very top of society proved that they were the best that humanity had to offer. It is important to note that Darwin's famous Origin of Species is actually subtitled Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Not surprisingly, the Royal Society, a scientific institution dedicated to the improvement of natural knowledge, picked up on these new ideas and promoted Darwin heavily. Being a creation of the British monarchy, the Royal Society was obviously in favor of promoting the idea of the genetic superiority of the royal family. Science itself was being positioned to replace the old religious appeal of the divine right of kings to rule over the inferior masses. Darwin himself stated, elite status is prima facie evidence of evolutionary superiority. Through scientism, science as religion, Darwinism could in fact bring about social change. Social Darwinism would manifest itself as eugenics. To eugenicists, the masses were cattle, with Galton calling eugenics the science of improving the stock. The rise of scientism spawned the widespread proliferation of eugenics as it reached American shores at the turn of the century. The Eugenics Record Office in Cold Springs Harbor, New York, went to work, amassing hundreds of thousands of family pedigrees for genetic research. They also lobbied for state sterilization acts and other eugenic legislation. In 1899, Henry Clay Sharp, a prison physician, began sterilizing degenerate prisoners and later in 1907 he was a key advocate for a law in Indiana which was passed mandating the compulsory sterilization of degenerates throughout the state. In 1921 the American Eugenics Society was formed and began propaganda campaigns which included the promotion of eugenics in churches, schools, and state fair exhibitions. Funding for American eugenics came from the Carnegie, Harriman, and Rockefeller families, among others. Eugenics was being accepted as a genuine form of science. Social Darwinism made strong advances toward a world in which scientism would fulfill Galton's dream of having eugenics be the religion of the future. But a major setback occurred at the end of World War II. It was discovered that American eugenics had been a major influence on Hitler's final solution. In 1934, Rudolf Hess had stated that National Socialism is nothing but applied biology. Hitler had only wanted to preserve the best German stock and elevate them to a dominant position within society. It was at this point in eugenics history that a crucial move had to be made in order to hide eugenics from the now aware masses of humanity. Prominent eugenicist Julian Huxley stepped up and offered a solution. He simply invented a new word to replace eugenics, that term being transhumanism, which he defined as a need for mankind to realize the importance of steering the direction of its own evolution. 
Yes, eugenics was one of the original aspects of transhumanism, and it is no surprise as Julian was the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley, who had been a president of the Royal Society and one of the most well-known advocates of Darwinism in its early days. Julian, being properly raised, was educated at Oxford, his specialty being evolutionary biology. He went on to many high-level positions, which included the titles of Vice President and President of the British Eugenics Society, which of course had the task of removing undesirable variants from the human gene pool. Julian Huxley has said the following of eugenics. The lowest strata are reproducing too fast. Therefore, they must not have too easy access to relief or hospital treatment, lest the removal of the last check on natural selection should make it too easy for children to be produced or to survive. Long unemployment should be a ground for sterilization. Transhumanism was born out of humanism which is yet another form of scientism, characterized by its faith in the power of human beings to create their own future. Yet another clever rationalization for eugenics as the creative force behind man-made evolution. No one doubts the wisdom of managing the germplasm of agricultural stocks, so why not apply the same concept to human stocks? Among Huxley's many distinguished positions, one which stands out was that of being the first ever Director General of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. The job of the organization being to bring culture to the third world. Culture being the worldwide spread of eugenic philosophy. It will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care, and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake, so that much that now is unthinkable may at least become thinkable. Darwinism is a religion to the global power elite, who do believe themselves superior to the masses of humanity. Humanism and transhumanism were clever disguises created specifically so that global eugenics operations could be carried out without being noticed. Insiders referred to their continued work as crypto-eugenics, as they were carried out covertly. Prominent among this crowd was the grandson of Charles Darwin, Charles Galton Darwin, a distinguished fellow of the Royal Society and president of the British Eugenics Society. In 1952, his book, The Next Million Years, was published. In it, he describes five great revolutions throughout human history, the fifth of which had not yet happened, but when it did, it would kickstart the next million years of human evolution. This fifth revolution would involve using science to alter human nature itself, possibly creating a race of supermen. This, of course, is the familiar transhumanist ideal of the post-human. If man is really a tame animal, there is no reason why breeds of man should not be created. Although, Galton Darwin was skeptical of this point because he believed that man is untamable. 
He goes on to illustrate this point with a hypothetical story of an island in which a visionary director gathers a variety of highly skilled people and institutes a social Darwinistic breeding program. Members of the island breed with each other based on their unique talents, intelligence, or beauty. For instance, two athletic people would give birth to a new generation of superior athletes. The population would become tame, but the island's director would not. Though it might conceivably be possible to tame the majority of mankind, this could only be done by leaving untamed a minority of the population. Moreover, this minority would have to be the group possessing the most superior qualities of all. The message is clear. Darwin is legitimizing the elite ruling class which he himself is a part of. The third tenet of Darwinism, that sexual instinct causes conflict, is also addressed in this book. Galton Darwin offers up a scientific solution. With the knowledge of the various sexual hormones, it might also become possible to free the majority of mankind from the urgency of sexual impulse so that they could live contented, celibate lives. He goes on and on about how the struggle for survival will cause global conflict and that eugenics operations will be a necessity to control population growth. He applauds China for its long history of civil services, which predate those of Europe by millennia. China is described as the model type of civilization for a world which will ultimately be unified through technology. Galton Darwin has a fascination with insects, stating that humans should resemble workers in an anthill. He goes on to say, There might be a drug which, without other harmful effects, removed the urgency of sexual desire, and so reproduced in humanity the status of workers in a beehive. It is this human beehive which has been the ideal society in the eyes of elites for a very long time. This will be the template for post-humanity, the ultimate slave race, scientifically designed to never rebel. The transhumanists have a popular term, hive mind, which refers to the giant collective intelligence which will be created when people the world over link their brains together with technology. Their general belief is that this new experience will be wonderful, creating a whole new superintelligence through symbiotic existence. In reality, the hive mind will be Galton Darwin's beehive, the creation of the new man, which has been written about for many years. scientific method. We know that there has been uh, uh, experiments done as far back as the 1920s and 30s uh, of trying to crossbreed animals with humans. The Germans were doing that. 
all the main eugenicists, Margaret Sanger, H.G. Wells, the princes, Prince Bernhardt, right. said yep. they're going to make two different species, and then BBC, while I was making the film, showed this little goblin creature that, that, that we're going to be, and then they're going to be these beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed people, and, and they hate us so much, they want to make themselves better than us, so they actively want to kill most of us and then have a clown goblin creature that they call the old humans that they laugh at. That's exactly right. We know the GMO food's changing our genetics. We know we're genetically getting dumber, not just chemically. Go ahead. This is massive, folks. That's right. That's what I've been looking at for 48 years, the, the complete transformation and transmutation of the human spirit into a whole new kind of creature. Transhumanism fills people's minds with hopes and dreams of becoming superhuman. But the fact of the matter is that the true goal is the removal of that pesky human sexual urge and ultimately of free will itself. Post-humanity will be a new human which has been genetically engineered and brain chipped for total control. Part man and part machine, the new man will no longer be in need of his sexual reproductive function. I understand that this is not what the average transhumanist wants to hear, but we must realize that such a bizarre and horrific future is not only possible, it is intended. Although we won't arrive at this point overnight, first we must step into the world of virtual reality where our identity as purely human will blend with that of our new virtual persona. In virtual reality, you can be someone else. You don't have to be the same boring person all the time. I mean, you all have these personalities inside you that don't quite fit with your bodies in real reality. So basically, most people just, like, kill them all off. Some people don't actually keep any of their personalities which reminds me of some of my old boyfriends, but that's another story. And you, and you read, read the Genesis, you read the government plans, they are now doing it, inserting us into a matrix, you're being sucked into your iPhone, sucked into your video games, you're already interfacing. By 2020, there'll be an entire three-dimensional universe in cyberspace, with virtual countries and governments, virtual schools and universities, virtual property and stock markets, and virtual family and friends. Virtual reality is going to become more and more like real reality, but have the advantage that I can share a virtual reality environment with someone else, even if they're hundreds of miles apart, and we can be in the same environment, and we can be other people, and we can change environments quickly, and it has a lot of advantages of real reality. I think in 10 years, things like Second Life will, will become as prevalent as email is now. And I think virtual worlds will, will become a similar way for people to get together, communicate, collaborate. I can see in the future that it's going to be so much more capable than it is today, and I'm going to love it. If a machine is passing down signals that keep you completely happy, then why not be part of the Matrix? I, I really do think uh, Neo in the Matrix trying to destroy things, he's a bit of a party pooper. Um, life for humans in a Matrix could be really cool.
To give skeptics the benefit of the doubt, perhaps this version of posthumanity is pure speculation. However, converging technology does present the need for radical change within society, no matter how it is applied. This point is made over and over again in the National Science Foundation 2001 report. The age of transitions refers to the fact that global society will be in flux during a time of massive changes. Making this point clear, the report goes on to explain the need for socio-tech, which is the predictive science of societal behavior. The multiple drivers of human behavior have long been known. Now, through the decoding of complex systems, a completely predictable and managed society can be realized. To use the tremendous computing power we now have to integrate data across these fields, to create new models and hence new understanding of the behavior of individuals, the ultimate goal is acquiring the ability to predict the behavior of an individual and, by extension, of groups. Using tools and approaches provided by science and technology will raise our ability to predict behaviors. It will allow us to interdict undesirable behaviors before they cause significant harm to others and to support and encourage behaviors leading to greater social goods. The enforcement of pre-crime, as in the film Minority Report, is their stated goal. The planning of this Orwellian system has even spawned a whole new science, memetics, which is the study of memes. A meme is any idea which passes from one person to others, eventually becoming a norm throughout society. Memetics would allow a deeper understanding of the collective cognitive processes throughout society. The applications are, of course, oriented toward social Darwinism. Memetics is founded on the principle of universal Darwinism. Darwin has this amazing idea. Indeed, some people say it's the best idea anybody ever had. Because the idea was so simple, and yet it explains all design in the universe. All, all, all design in the universe. Certain ideas may have the force of a social virus. We can't let any social viruses bring down the species now, can we? Prior efforts to Darwinize culture have a long and ignoble history. What is new that might allow progress this time around? Not surprisingly, the report also gives a visionary solution to the war on terror. Sociotech can help us win the war on terrorism. It can help us to understand the motivations of the terrorists and so eliminate them. At this point, it's important to understand the legal definition of the term terrorist. Since 9-11, a mountain of legislation has been passed, including the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the John Warner Defense Act, and countless others, all of which have, through their legislative cunning, rendered the term terrorist so ambiguous that you can be deemed a terrorist for any reason at all. You can be taken to a secret prison without charges, without habeas corpus, and with no rights whatsoever. These laws were not written on a whim. 
They were specifically designed to give the government carte blanche authority over the people during the chaos and confusion of the age of transitions. And so this transition is perhaps the most important transition of all time. Some people don't want it. They fear this transition because this transition is to a planetary civilization tolerant of many cultures. These are the terrorists. They fear this because they know they are witnessing the birth pang of the beginning of a new planetary civilization and the terrorists want nothing to do with it. global interdependence increases, every aspect of human life will change. Climate change, competition for resources, shortages of food and water, and the constant threat of pandemics will keep people in a worldwide state of shock. As the middle class in the West declines, extremist politics will be embraced by some out of desperation. Flash mobs will threaten military forces, which admittedly will be working alongside police. As America and Europe decline in power, China and India are expected to gain prominence on the global stage. The population of the West will decrease due to declining fertility. The report mentions this declining fertility on three separate occasions, but interestingly, never explains the cause of this problem. Amid all this crisis, technological breakthroughs will develop at an unprecedented rate. Human-computer interfaces will stimulate cultural change. By 2035, an implantable information chip could be developed and wired directly to the user's brain. Synthetic sensory perception means direct to the user's senses. It is likely that the majority of the global population will find it difficult to turn the outside world off. ICT is likely to be so pervasive that people are permanently connected to a network or two-way data stream with inherent challenges to civil liberties. Being disconnected could be considered suspicious. Disconnecting from the hive mind will get the military police at your door in no time. Presumably at this point, they will be super soldiers. So if you're lucky, they'll drag you off to a forced labor camp as opposed to simply just bashing your brains in. What kind of class structure will exist in this nightmare world? A small, super rich elite and a substantial underclass of slum and subsistence dwellers. Where are those techno-progressives when you need them? 
A more permissive R&D environment could accelerate the decline of ethical constraints and restraints. The speed of technological and cultural change could overwhelm society's ability to absorb the ethical implications. The nearest approximation to an ethical framework could become a form of secular utilitarianism in an otherwise amoral scientific culture. The ultimate form of social Darwinism will be welcomed at long last. Galdon's religion will reign supreme as the younger generations make eugenics a normal part of their life. Declining youth populations in Western societies could become increasingly dissatisfied with their economically burdensome baby boomer elders. This could lead to a civic renaissance with strict penalties for those failing to fulfill their social obligations. It might also open the way to policies which permit euthanasia as a means to reduce the burden of care for the elderly. Julian Huxley couldn't have said it better himself, but let's not forget Julian's brother, Aldous Huxley, author of Doors of Perception and A Brave New World. In 1962, he gave a lecture at the UC Berkeley in which he clearly laid out the vision of this planned future society. In the past, we can say that uh, all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing uh, the environment in order to change the individual. Today, uh, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on uh, the mind body of his fellows. The nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, this is the, seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. First of all, to standardize the population, to iron out uh, inconvenient human dis uh, uh, differences, uh, to create, uh, so to say, mass-produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system. A number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true. Uh, or seem in process of coming true, not through terror, but through making life seem much more enjoyable than it normally does. Uh, enjoyable to the point where, as I said before, uh, human beings uh, come to love a state of things which by any reasonable and decent human standard they ought not to love. And this, I think, is perfectly possible. One of the more recent uh, developments in the sphere of, uh, of neurology, the the implantation of uh, electrodes in the brain. Uh, this, of course, has been done on a large scale. Uh, the behavior of rats with uh, electrodes planted in different centers. Technique was that they had a bar which they pressed and which um, stimulated this pleasure center, which was evidently absolutely ecstatic, because these rats were, were pressing the bar 18,000 times a day. 
apparently if you kept them from pressing the bar for a day, they would press the bar 36,000 times on the following day and would fall till they fell down in complete exhaustion. <laughs> And they would neither eat nor be interested in the, uh, the opposite sex and would just go on pressing the bar. In the cases, the few cases in which this has been done with very sick human beings, uh, the effects are evidently very remarkable. These people were suffering from the, uh, the uncontrollable depression. And they were, they'd had uh, the electrodes inserted into something resembling evidently the pleasure center of the rat. When they felt too bad, they just pressed a button and the battery in their pocket. And he said the result was fantastic. The sort of things that might happen. I mean, what might happen if, uh, if these fantastically powerful techniques uh, were used by unscrupulous uh, people in authority? What on earth would, would happen? What, what sort of society would we get? Mind control is the most important issue facing humanity today. All other issues, causes, choices, and electives are contingent upon our free thought. We all formulate our, our thoughts and our actions based on what we know. And we need to know that that knowledge base has been altered. It's been deliberately suppressed for decades. I've come a long way from the kind of robotic mind control that I experienced. And even though my experience is extreme and, and pretty horrific in, in many regards, the fact remains that mind control is a sliding scale. And we all experience some form of mind control or another, whether it's information control that's absolutely controlling our perceptions, our abilities to respond, allowing for that superstition to creep in. And superstition so often renders us totally helpless to affect a situation. The basic problem is that we are living in a virtual reality. We're living in a totally controlled environment, an environment that has been, been created by mass media. Now, many people, especially young people, accept unquestioningly the reality that is presented by the media. Popular culture, movies, television, music carry messages about how society works and how people should behave. And so entertainment is not value-free. It has ideological content. It presents a worldview that influences the people who watch the programming. There is a reason why television networks and, and, and the music industry, the various companies, they have programming departments. The programming that we are constantly assaulted by throughout our lives conditions us. It programs us to a particular worldview. Take a look at some of the most popular television programs in our culture. American Idol, Survivor, Game Shows. All of these are designed to reinforce the social Darwinian concept of competition. In order to survive, you must outdo your competitors. This is a recurrent theme in our society. 
We have all been propagandized to have low self-esteem. The only way to feel good about yourself is to succeed. Success involves acquiring anything that is bigger and better. If you have to be disingenuous or downright conniving, that's okay, as long as you end up winning. We are expected to take this as a law of nature. After all, it's survival of the fittest. This is the way that species evolve. You don't want to hold humanity back now, do you? Think of the mass media that preys on our insecurities. Fitness magazines, fashion, obsession with celebrity, youth, wealth, and beauty. We are obsessed with youth and enhancement. And now, the ultimate form of enhancement is at our fingertips. Transhumanism offers the ultimate form of bettering yourself. You want to be young? How's eternal life sound? You want to be strong? Why not add some machine parts to your pathetic body? You want to be smart? Here, put this computer chip in your head and become omnipotent. If you think that transhumanism is being introduced into such a fiercely competitive world by chance, think again. We have all been trained like Pavlovian dogs with a non-stop barrage of propaganda. If we don't own up to this reality, then we will all be outdone by our superiors, those people who have always believed themselves to be the pinnacle of human greatness. This is a top-down system created from the top to benefit a very few at the top. We are at the bottom. But if we all wake up and realize that this is not our system, then it can be changed. If you read the, the books by Plato, uh, he, he being an aristocrat of his day and studying in Egypt, he believed this himself and he, he wrote about it in his books. Oh, Plato? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, and so, so the... Um the inferior ones like us, we we don't uh, we don't have souls. Well, you have a soul. See, in ancient times, and this was even taught in the early Christian church, you had body, soul, and spirit. And if you had all three, that was completion. That was the ultimate trinity. Uh, but they claimed that the people at the bottom never achieved or acquired spirit, so they were just soul. The soul had no intellect of its own, and you just went back into the big sea of pea soup. And uh, got mushed up. Ah, yeah. I see. Oh, that's that's uh, oh, that's pretty wild. And that's what Plato attributed their superior intellect and knowledge, uh, and, and for the very fact they were aristocratic and successful, that's why he attributed that too. Was that they came from these lineages that had uh, spirit. So they so they go on and evolve, but the rest of us go back into the primordial soup. Or that's, the, it. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's wow, that's pretty wild. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, thanks, Alan. Thanks for calling. Life extension, singularity, and the promise of a golden age. Are we to believe in such a thing? Or are we being led down a primrose path, the proverbial road to hell? Post human a word not to be taken lightly, as it implies the end of the human race. Who has the authority to make such a decision? Only a god, or a power which believes itself to be a god, can take such action. 
I realize that many of you watching this have become hardened, jaded, and cynical in life. You may even believe that the human race doesn't deserve to live on, or at least that's what you think you believe. Now is the time to face that phantom in the mirror in order to find out what truly exists within the innermost core of your being. I sincerely hope you will understand that life is sacred, free will is a gift, and humanity is worth saving. Thank you. 
This may seem an unlikely place to begin the modern history of the credit card. More than a thousand miles from Wall Street in the paneled halls of the Federal Reserve in Washington. But this is where the credit card business first began to really take off. This is Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a modest town of 140,000, known for its cattle auctions and meatpacking industry. It's a town which boasts a huge post office, big enough to service a city several times its size. Every day, millions of pieces of mail pass through here. And from here, millions of credit card solicitations and bills are sent to mailboxes across America. And billions of dollars in credit card payments come in from around the world. Today, Sioux Falls is one of the major credit card processing centers in the country. It all happened in Sioux Falls because a quarter of a century ago, times were hard in South Dakota. There was a nationwide recession with double-digit inflation. Money was very tight. South Dakota banks were issuing very few mortgages or loans of any kind. Interest rates were going into orbit. They were climbing all the time. So Bill Janklow was then the governor of South Dakota. When I came to the governor's office, South Dakota had very tight historical laws on what you could charge to borrow. In other words, uh, there was one interest rate by law that they could charge for new cars, another one for used cars. It was highly regulated what interest rates people could pay. What I'm trying to say is, we may have a law that said you could charge 9%, but money cost 11%, so banks weren't loaning money. To get the banks to issue loans, South Dakota decided to eliminate its historic cap on interest rates, known as a usury law. We had actually changed some of our laws in 79, and we had previously introduced legislation and passed legislation, or were passing legislation, to lift the ceilings on usury so we could free up and get capital in South Dakota. At the same time across the country, in New York City, a legendary banker had his own problems. Well, it's very simple. We we're going broke. Walter Riston, then chairman of Citibank, had a credit card division that was hemorrhaging money. New York's usury laws prohibited banks from charging more than 12% on most consumer loans. And interest rates went up to 20%. Mm-hmm. And if you are lending money at 12% and paying 20%, you don't have to be Einstein to realize you're out of business. It was costing Citibank 20% for money, and you were only getting 12% sure. back? Certainly. Because That's of the limit on interest. Yes. There was no way that you could continue. So Riston and Citibank began looking for a new place to do business. So we made a study of the five states that had either no usury law or very high <coughs> amounts. One of them was South Dakota. So he said, look, we'll bring a couple of thousand jobs out here. In 1981, Citibank moved its credit card operation from New York to South Dakota. From the time I met them until we passed our legislation, it was just several weeks. I mean, we really moved. That, that was a good deal for us. It was a hell of a deal for them. What did they get out of this? What Citibank got out of it? They got to stay alive. 
But what really attracted Citibank to South Dakota was an obscure Supreme Court decision that said a bank could now export its interest rate to other states. It was called the Marquette decision. The Marquette Bank decision was a U.S. Supreme Court decision that said, forget where the bank is chartered. Wherever the credit decision is made, in whatever state, that's the place where you can apply interest wherever you make the loan. In other words, if South Dakota had a 25% ceiling, then you could charge 25% even to a loan in Florida. Janklow realized that the Marquette decision meant that South Dakota could become the credit card capital of America. In a very short period of time, matter of a few months, I was meeting with the chairman of the board of Bank of America, with First Chicago of Illinois, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank, Manufacturers Hanover Bank, Chemical Bank, Bank of New York, all the big banks in America, because only South Dakota at that point in time appeared to be willing to to move forward to invite people to come in. But soon, another state got into the act. Delaware copied South Dakota's legislation, and Wilmington soon became the credit card center of the East, luring other New York banks and giving rise to new companies like MBNA. For the first time in American history, there were no legal restrictions on the interest rates banks could charge on credit cards nationwide. You could look at the Marquette decision and say, all right, maybe it took the lid off, but what it did was it had a very egalitarian effect. Duncan McDonald is the former general counsel of Citibank's credit card division. He says the Marquette decision allowed bankers to charge higher interest rates to riskier customers. The minute Marquette came along, you could jack the price up a little bit more to cover those people, and as a result, tens of millions of people who were paying 30 and 35% interest rates to small loan companies all of a sudden got the product at 19% at interest rate and an annual fee of $20. So in that sense, it was very egalitarian and very good. And very good for banking. As the deregulation of interest rates enabled more people to get credit cards, the industry began to expand and became the most profitable sector of banking, with $30 billion in profits last year. We wanted to talk to the executives of the major credit card banks about their business but were directed instead to the American Bankers Association. We've asked for interviews with all the major credit card companies. Uh -huh. They won't talk to us. Why? That's our job. Uh, they pay us dues to handle these kinds of sometimes difficult assignments. Ed Yingling is the incoming president of the American Bankers Association and the industry's top lobbyist. How profitable is the credit card business? The credit card business is profitable. You would expect the credit card business to be somewhat more profitable than the rest of the industry or parts of the industry because it's riskier. Uh, it is an unsecured loan, and so you would expect the returns to be a little higher. Wasn't last year record profits for this industry, and they're expected again this year? Uh, yeah, but compared to what? It is not an unusually profitable business compared to other businesses. MB&A's profits last year, one and a half times that of McDonald's. Well, McDonald's didn't do too well last year, and MB&A is a big company. Citibank more profitable than Microsoft, Walmart, and the executives are highly paid. Right, right. These are, these are really big businesses, and they do make money. Today, nearly 144 million Americans have credit cards, and they are using their cards like never before. 
charging $1.5 trillion last year alone. Credit cards have become an essential part of the American economy. I really can't say that I love my credit card, but I would hate to live without it. I use it a lot for work. It's easy. It's easy access. I can take clients out for dinner. I take advantage of the miles. We fly first class on vacations. It's nice to be able to spend what you don't have. Can you imagine living without a credit card in this society? That's hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. We sat down with a group of credit card customers to talk about how they use their cards. We're consumers. America loves to consume. It's in our blood. It is like an addiction. I mean, I have this new credit card in my pocket, and look at that great dress. I can do it. I really shouldn't do it all. I'll just pay it off later. And you do it. Mm -hmm. But I don't have that iPod. I'm not cool. Yeah. So I can charge it and pay it off. And Christmas is just around the corner. There's always something. <laughs> They're just a gift for the traveler, which I am, a very, very, very frequent traveler indeed is what I am, uh, they are indispensable. Actor and author Ben Stein loves the convenience of using his credit cards. Credit cards are an incredible deal for me. I mean, I have lots and lots of different cards. I, I mean, my wallet is just stuffed with cards. It's just insane. It's just ridiculous. I look like, I, I look like I've got a third breast from my uh, carrying around my wallet with so many credit cards in it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a nice afternoon. Stein says he charges thousands of dollars a month in business expenses on his credit cards. I use all their good services and they don't make any money from me. I mean, none to speak of. Oh, wait, here's a kind of cute one. The credit card companies do make a percentage on each transaction, but Stein is not their ideal customer because like 55 million Americans, he pays his bills off every month and doesn't pay any interest. The credit card companies hate people like me who pay off our bills every month. And I know that because I ran into a fellow I went to high school with on the street, and he told me he worked for a credit card company, and I told him about how much I use credit cards now. I pay them off every month, and he said, oh, we, got, we hate you. We hate you guys. We call you deadbeats. Deadbeats in the upside-down world of the credit card business are the people like Ben Stein who pay off their bills on time. The industry's best customers are the 90 million Americans who don't pay off their credit card debt. They're called the revolvers. People in the industry tell us that, that revolvers, people who borrow money basically with their credit card, that's where the profits are. I don't think that's where all the profits are. Well, I, think, I think it is generally understood that those that use the revolving part of the credit card uh, are, are kind of the sweet spot. Today, the sweet spot, as Mr. Yingling calls it, continues to grow, and the top interest rates charged are higher than ever before, according to Robert McKinley, who founded CardWeb, a research firm that tracks the industry. The top 10 issuers in, in the country are charging interest rates of 25 to 30 percent to some of their customers. And this is in a market where interest rates are at a 40-year low. We have consumers paying interest rates that would be considered loan sharks uh, in my day. At the same time, Americans with credit card balances are carrying a record amount of debt. How much credit card debt is the average American family carrying? About $8,000 for those who are carrying some debt. Elizabeth Warren is a Harvard Law professor. She has researched the growing credit card debt held by middle-class families and how it can lead to big trouble. 
And what families are discovering, even with mom and dad in the workplace, is they often can't make it to the end of the month. And so they often use credit cards to bridge the gap. They borrow to make ends meet. And then what happens is something goes wrong. Somebody loses a job, somebody gets sick, family breaks apart through death or divorce. She doing okay? Like most Americans, Jim and Juanita Mueller managed to pay their credit card bills each month until they both lost their jobs. We didn't have any emergency funds set aside, so they kind of became our emergency fund to, to fund our life while we were waiting for the employment to come along. And so you borrow from the credit card and pay that month, and then the job doesn't happen, so now you got to borrow more, and, and we just kept digging deeper and deeper. And we started robbing Peter to pay Paul, as the expression goes, you know, take a money from a credit card to pay other credit cards, and that just increases it. And that's where it really started to snowball. As the Mueller's fell behind, their credit card companies began to apply penalty interest rates and fees to their bills. Do you remember when the interest rates started to rise? Some of them, one late payment and forget your old interest deal that you had. So, um, And forget the fact that you had the credit card for a number of years and were paying on it regularly. We're never late, and as soon as you make what you miss one payment, it's like all deals are off. Everything goes up. I mean, some of the credit cards we had were nine percent or less. All of a sudden, they're twenty-four, twenty-five percent because oh, well, you're late. You've been late several months, and so now we're going to raise your interest rate, and we're charging you the late fee. And now, because the interest rate and the late fees have accumulated, now you're over your limit, so there's an over limit fee. The Mueller's credit card debt eventually grew to nearly $80,000 on 10 cards. They found that they could no longer keep up with their payments and had to file for bankruptcy. They were one of a record 7 million families to file in the last five years. It wasn't that we didn't want to pay off our, our credit cards. It's we got to the point where it was impossible. Right. It was just, I mean, short of uh, a rich relative, which neither one of us have, dying and leaving us, uh, $100,000, nothing was going to happen because the credit card companies weren't, they weren't willing to work with us unless they got all their money as fast as possible. The main things that trigger a bankruptcy filing are a job loss, a medical problem, or a family breakup. Without those things, most American families can deal with their credit card debt. But high credit card debt puts them at much greater risk so that if they stumble, if they get hit by one of the other blows, they get their feet tangled up in those high interest rates and they just get sunk. Zero percent for life on transfer balances and a three, up to three percent cashback bonus. Ironically, the Mueller's are still getting offers for more credit cards. And you're still getting solicitations in the mail. Yeah, we got yeah. one yesterday from a credit card company that told me I would never have credit with them again. One of the last times I talked with them and told them what our situation was, they said, well, we're canceling your card, and you are, in essence, blackballed with us for life. You'll never have a credit card from us ever again. Yesterday, received a solicitation from them, 0% for life, with up to a $50,000 line of credit. Diapers, milk, and laundry detergent. $25. Oh, yeah, and that stuff he just said. Spend more time with your family. 
priceless. Encouraging Americans to take on credit card debt is critical to the profitability of the industry. Hawaii! Call now to request the City Advantage World MasterCard, and you can earn free award travel plus get 10,000 bonus miles. Making it easier and more attractive to spend has been the job of Madison Avenue marketers. New tool belt and chrome tool set. $126. Getting some use out of it. Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For Father's Day, there's MasterCard. But the success of the industry has also relied on financial innovators like this man, Andrew Carr, whose peculiar genius, industry insiders say, has helped shape the way the credit card business works. Carr, a consultant who rarely consents to interviews, only agreed to talk with us if we did not identify his clients or where he is currently living. Give me an idea of, from the time you got involved, late 70s, with credit cards, the ideas, the innovations that you've come up with? Well, I convinced the client that instead of having 5% of the balance as a minimum payment, we should reduce that to 2%, which is a very dramatic change, less than half. Before Andrew Carr got involved in the industry, most bankers required that customers pay 5% of their credit card balance every month. Carr realized that if customers were able to pay less, they would borrow more. You were able to explain that it was people making low payments who were the most profitable. Having a lower minimum payment allows you to offer higher credit lines, which first of all makes your card product more attractive because people judge, even if they don't intend to use the whole line, they would rather have a higher line. The high balance accounts will be much more profitable than the low balance accounts. Because they're paying interest? Because they're paying interest on a higher balance. Today, CAR's 2% minimum is a common feature on millions of credit card bills. And every month, some 35 million Americans pay only the minimum payment. By the way, while you're running up balances on your credit cards, or currently have balances on your credit cards, do you have cash in the bank? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can wipe my debt out. So why don't you do it? I feel this is a nest egg. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You might need that money for something else. So even though you're paying double-digit interest and you could get rid of the balance right. or most of it, you're going to still make those payments and keep the cash in your bank account. Right. Andrew Carr's research showed that making the minimum payment eased consumers' anxiety about carrying large amounts of credit card debt. They believed they were being financially prudent. If you lose your job or you, you know, something bad happens, you have to have money and you don't want to live off of a credit card. So you need to have that money, you know, saved somewhere in case something happens. In fact, the industry was reaping huge profits from Andrew Carr's intuition about people's behavior. But then in the late 90s, Carr says he had a new insight. Customers were being flooded with competitive offers for low-interest cards. People were offering 12.9% interest for the first six months, 10.9% uh, on balance transfers, and I convinced the client to go straight to 0% as an introductory rate. It gave them competitive advantage. It led to, of course, the others also going to 0%. Carr knew that even though the 0% offer could easily change, people would still be attracted to the bait. When you're getting something in the mail several times a week that offers you 0% for six months, 
they look at the headlines of the solicitation of the mail, they spend 30 seconds on it, and okay, I'm going to be better off at the beginning, they're going to give me something, they're going to give me a 0% rate. Uh, people believe what they want to believe. 0% APR. What does this mean? I mean, you're saying that's meaningless. In most cases, if you were to sign up for this card, the bank will honor that rate through that period of time. But there's a lot of fine print that goes with uh, what could happen. For example, if you were to miss one payment, uh, this rate will go away immediately. According to McKinley, the key to understanding how credit cards are marketed lies in the great digital revolution, the amassing of data on American consumers. Well, there's a gold mine of information residing out there in these databases by the consumer reporting agencies, the credit bureaus. Uh, they're collecting information about what kind of accounts you have open, the balances, whether or not you make those payments on time, and that's a huge reservoir of information there that they can tap into and be able to get a sense as to whether or not a consumer is a revolver, someone who doesn't pay the balance off in full each month. So they can kind of sift those out, and, and, and today it's really become almost surgical. The ability to surgically target consumers and track their financial behavior has become a booming business dominated by three credit reporting agencies which gather information. All that data is then crunched by a little-known company called Fair Isaac, which calculates a number called a FICO score for almost every American with a credit history. We're not a credit reporting agency like an Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian that's gathering information daily on consumers and building up consumer records. Tom Quinn is a spokesman for Fair Isaac. We simply work with the credit reporting agencies and they deploy their data onto our mathematical formula to create that score. The median FICO score is 720 out of a possible 850. The riskiest customers have scores below 600. The score is an indication of how likely you are to pay your bills. Lenders use that score almost like a thermometer to determine if they're going to grant credit or not. So the algorithm is an indication of that consumer's future risk in terms of credit behavior. Algorithm meaning a mathematical formula. Math yes, mathematical formula. And how many people have this number? We estimate that approximately 75% of the U.S. population that is eligible for credit, i.e. those who are 18 years or older, have a FICO score at any given time. You know your credit score? Mm -hmm. You're not aware that you have a credit score? I'm aware that I have one. I don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it is either. So if I said to you the words FICO score, do you know what a FICO score is? Mm -hmm. I know the terms. I'm not clear on what they are. I've never gotten my credit score. An individual's FICO score often determines how much interest he will pay on a credit card. The terms and conditions of the card are laid out in the fine print of this contract. When I get a credit card, there's a, a contract that goes along with it. What kind of contract is this? Because I never read it. Have you ever read it when it came to you? Uh, I'd have to admit, in most cases, I may have just glanced at it. You know, it's filled with so many legal terms and so many pages and such small print and it can be intimidating I think. It says that I'm guaranteed the terms of the loan for as long as I have the card. <laughs> yeah well you know, things that, the one unique thing about the credit card business is that the issuer can change the terms and conditions at will. Without asking my permission? Absolutely. They can change it all. It only takes 15 days notice to make those changes.
I mean, you could be offered a 5 or 6% interest rate today and perhaps get it. Two months later, that could be 30%. There's nothing to prevent the issuer from changing those uh, conditions. Even Professor Elizabeth Warren, an expert on contract law, says she has a hard time deciphering her contract. I've read my credit card agreement, and I can't figure out the terms. I teach contract law, and the underlying premise of contract law is the two parties to the contract understand what the terms are. Have you ever read the contract that's sent to you with your credit card? Yes, but I'm a lawyer. Do <laughs> you understand it? I, I do understand it. I think it would be very hard for uh, uh, a lot of people to understand. And I think it's a constant battle to try to figure out how you make disclosures and those types of things in plain English so that somebody will uh, uh, read them. Ed Yingling says the fact that the contracts are difficult to understand is not the industry's fault. Our disclosures are very explicitly set forth in law and in regulation much more so than in most consumer contracts, uh, ours are, are heavily regulated. They say the contract contains information, even the typeface, that's mandated by law. Laws but the laws, that's the point now, the laws are inadequate. There's not enough there. These guys have figured out the best way to compete is to put a smiley face in your commercials, a low introductory rate, and hire a team of MBAs to lay traps in the fine print. One of those traps, according to Warren and other critics, is something called universal default. If you do miss a mortgage payment, you do miss a car payment, any other, it can trigger what is called a universal default. They actually have the right to change it if you miss a payment with another creditor. Or, in some cases, even if there's a change in your credit worthiness. In fact, you don't have to miss a payment. You don't have to go over your credit limit to be in default. You could for example, or maybe your balances are too high. You've seen one of these, right, before? Mm -hmm. I want to read you something from a, a contract. Your APRs also may vary if you are in default under this agreement or any other agreement that you have with us or any other related companies for any of the following reasons. You fail to make a payment to another creditor when due. Do you understand what this means? Uh -huh. You do. Do you know that it means that if you fail to make a payment and are late on anything else that you're paying on, your house, your car, anything else, they will find out and they can change your interest rate? Did you know that? I had no idea. No. I have no idea. This is the first I've ever heard that. Well, why is it legal? Mm -hmm. Well, because it's disclosed in the contract. It doesn't seem fair. You've done no harm to the company themselves. You're late with someone else. You haven't affected your standing with that company. No, it doesn't seem fair that they would suddenly say, oh, well, now we can raise your rate. They're taking advantage of someone who is in that position. That's what Andrew Guile of Wilmington, Delaware, says happened to him. Yes. Um, I had gotten a letter from MBNA several months ago that my rate was going to be increased. MBNA raised his 8.9% interest rate to 19.9%, and his minimum monthly payments nearly doubled. They told me the first time that my rate had been raised because they found an occasion back in 1998 when I'd gone 60 days past due on a competitor's credit card 
and I asked them, what in the world does that have to do with MBNA, especially being six years ago? And I said, that has nothing to do with my account here. I mean, that absolutely took my breath away. When Guile protested, he says he was given another reason for the change. He had become riskier, he was told, because his account balances with other creditors were too high. I was a great customer at MBNA. Always paid my balances on time, paid more than the minimum balance, you know, many times paying it down completely. But I was, I was never late, and I used the card in a wise and responsible manner. Frontline wanted to ask MBNA about Guile's problem, but we were told they never comment on an individual's account. But just two months after our interview, Guile says he got a call from the office of the president of MBNA saying they would move his interest rate back to 8.9%. The real question here is whether or not you can change the price, not for new items you buy after your credit score has changed, but for old credit that you've already taken out. My mortgage company agreed to an interest rate, and if I lost my job, my mortgage company does not get to double my mortgage. Credit card companies can say, remember, how you bought the big screen TV at 9.8% interest? We've decided we want 29.9% interest. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it right now. The contract allows a credit card company to change the interest rate on money you borrow mm -hmm. from them after you borrowed it. Uh, some do. Yeah, it depends on the contract, but a lot of them do. If um, they find out through this information system that you've been late on your payment for your automobile, they, they can notify you and that, that you're going to change the interest rate on the money they've already lent you. Uh, and I think there is a misunderstanding about what the credit card agreement is. My agreement with you is you come to me, you have a certain credit score, and based on that credit score, I'm going to charge you 12%. If in the future, it turns out that your credit score has deteriorated and you now are more risky to me, I'm going to charge you the interest rate I would charge to somebody that has that credit score. Is it fair to change the price of the deal after the fact? The product is not a promise to somebody that we will lend you that amount of money forever at that interest rate. It is a very short-term revolving line of credit. Dishonest. Plain and simple, it's dishonest. They, they may say it's good business for their financial bottom line, but it is a very poor way to treat a customer. In 1996, another important Supreme Court decision opened the door to bigger profits for the credit card industry and a raft of new complaints from their customers. That decision Smiley versus Citibank, much like the Marquette decision before it, lifted state restrictions this time on the fees that credit card banks could charge. We were working this thing here for a good cause, free market pricing. Duncan McDonald was one of the lawyers who worked on the Smiley case. The late fees that were common across the industry up until Smiley were in the $5 and the $10 range. And the economic thinking was that there had to be flexibility to allow up to $15. But when Smiley came along and took the lid off it, it went from 5 to 10 to 15 to 29, and recently it's gone up to 39. I would guess 
but it's probably going to go up to $50 a year and a half from now. I certainly didn't imagine that someday we might have ended up creating a Frankenstein. Frankenstein. What do you mean, Frankenstein? I look at that and I say to myself, is $50 a fair fee plus a 25% interest rate and all these other fees that are thrown on for folks who are probably not that risky? Is that fair? I look at it and I say to myself, there's the Frankenstein. We've created something that, that, that has, to be, uh, has to be dealt with. Since Smiley, credit card companies have doubled the amount of revenue they generate from fees. Late fees, over-the-limit fees, return check fees, and the like. Fee income uh, has gone up much, much faster than interest income in the business. The fees are meant as a penalty to make sure that you pay on time, or are they a profit stream? Well, they really have become a profit stream. It's not just the fees that they charge. Even though they're three and four times higher than they were uh, less than 10 years ago, that's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the penalty that's inflicted on consumers with these uh, situations where they make a late payment. It's the penalty interest rate that really does the damage. Your interest rate could double overnight. But just so I understand, the, the, the interest rates are not regulated. They can change the interest rate relationship that you have with them for 15 days' notice. So that's a major source of profit for them. And the fees are now no longer regulated. That's exactly right. It's, uh, it's wide open. Uh, we're beginning to see banks do all this tweaking uh, where they're changing uh, the interest rates and uh, uh, raising fees, adding new fees, uh, uh, all kinds of the way they calculate interest, setting the due dates on a Sunday and a holiday on the hopes that uh, maybe you'll trip up and get a payment in late. It's become a very anti-consumer marketplace. Even the industry's top lobbyist is concerned. I think it would be short-sighted for a credit card company to have fees that, that uh, would make somebody angry because they're likely to lose that customer. And I think it's going to cost them more to replace that customer uh, than they're likely to get out of the fee. You have bankers who have skyrocketed rates from 14% to 25% and $40 uh, uh, late fees and uh, bad check fees and so on that fall on the shoulders of the less well-off. Yes, there's something bad has happened. So we need regulation. Well, we have regulation. We have regulation already. The control of the currency regulates all the national banks, uh, and they have very vast powers. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, is an obscure Washington agency, part of the Treasury Department, and it regulates the national banks, Banks like Chase, Citibank, and MBNA that issue most of the credit cards in this country. Julie Williams is the acting comptroller of the currency. We have three goals to make sure that the banks don't fail, to ensure the integrity of how the banks operate their, their corporate governance, and to make sure that they deal fairly and honestly with their customers. At the extreme, we have the ability to take enforcement actions, and we have done that. We have taken enforcement actions. Can you give us an example of how you have brought a large institution to task? Uh, well, I think the, probably the most conspicuous uh, example of that would be uh, the action that we took uh, in connection with Providian. That's not the story they tell in San Francisco, where in the late 1990s, the credit card company Providian Financial was experiencing double-digit growth. Providian specialized in the riskiest customers with the lowest credit scores. They were targeting 
people with questionable credit or marginal credit, uh, people that couldn't get bank cards elsewhere. Pat Wallace is the head of the Better Business Bureau in the San Francisco area. First thing that got our attention, of course, were the numbers, and the numbers of complaints. Providian was involved in all kinds of questionable uh, offers and policies and procedures and operations. Complaints about Providian from around the country came here to Wallace's office. Providian, for example, was accepting payments from consumers on their accounts, depositing the checks, but not crediting the account for sometimes up to several weeks. What was the net result of that? Invariably, the consumer got a late charge. They were holding payments so that they could charge late fees and they could charge overdraft fees and innocent limit fees. 50% of their income were fees, not interest on the money loan. Well, they were pushing the envelope. And they got by with it for a period of time and they made a lot of money. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency is the main federal agency that takes complaints. Did they come to your assistance? No, they just simply weren't interested. You know, the response was, well, you know, we'll take it from here, we'll watch from here. You know, it's not a problem uh, at this time for us. Complaints about Providian were also coming to June Crevette at the San Francisco District Attorney's Consumer Protection Unit, and she began to investigate eventually drawing local press attention and then a phone call from the OCC. Had you ever heard of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency? The answer from my perspective is no. Didn't really know much about it. Didn't know exactly what they did and exactly who they regulated. We never heard of them being very active in the area of consumer litigation or consumer enforcement actions against the banks. And when the OCC contacted June Crevette, she says instead of cooperation, they issued a challenge. There were a couple of meetings where the subject of preemption was raised. Preemption? Yeah. That's where they say, because we're the federal regulator, that uh, they have exclusive authority over the national banks, and therefore we don't have jurisdiction. You, San Francisco, don't have jurisdiction. Yes. The San Francisco District Attorney says to us that they were told, you don't have real jurisdiction, we have real jurisdiction, and indicated to them that they might want to get out of the case. The way that that worked out was we worked together with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. It was a, a collaborative process. Uh, and well, they say once you got involved, it was very fruitful. But right. what they're telling us is that the OCC only got involved once this whole situation became public, that prior to the news publicity that they were responsible for, they had no contact with the OCC. We worked um, cooperatively with them when we got information about what was going on. The joint investigation eventually culminated in a $300 million settlement. Providian declined to be interviewed and issued a statement saying, Rather than revisit the past, the company is focused on services that provide real benefits today. In Washington, the OCC has been increasingly asserting its authority and attempting to curb consumer enforcement actions by local prosecutors. This has sparked a nationwide battle, 
led by the attorneys general in all 50 states. The OCC is now trying to squeeze out the state presence to prevent us from protecting consumers, which I think is ultimately very injurious to consumers. Elliot Spitzer is the attorney general of New York State. We get thousands of complaints every year about credit card issues relating to the major banks, the major card issuers. And so we get these complaints and we try to deal with the credit card companies. But increasingly over the past number of years, what we have heard back from the major banks in a variety of contexts is that we don't need to deal with you because the OCC has told us, indeed has directed us, not to deal with state enforcement entities. Isn't this just a turf battle between the states and a federal agency? It's a one-way turf battle. And by that, what I mean is we are more than happy to acknowledge that the OCC has jurisdiction across the financial system when it comes to certain issues. What the OCC is trying to do is squeeze the states out in the one area where we have been incredibly useful, which is consumer protection. The state attorneys general, Mr. Spitzer and others, say that people in our state know who we are. We have a consumer complaint office. And our beef is, is that you guys, the OCC, want to push them out of the business of consumer complaints. We don't want to push them out of the business. Uh, we are both there uh, protecting consumers. What we have been striving to do uh, is to uh, individually uh, and uh, in uh, developing arrangements with the states work out the best way to work cooperatively with them. In January of 2004, the OCC declared itself the exclusive regulator of all the national banks, effectively immunizing the big credit card issuers from most state consumer protection laws. The OCC cited the Providian case as proof of its commitment to consumers. I was dismayed that they used Providian as the, uh, the prime example of their ability and their will to enforce uh, the laws that pertain to consumers. To you, they weren't the white knight who came into San Francisco and saved consumers from Providian? No, we were. Since the Providian case, the OCC says it has been more aggressive, recently issuing an advisory admonishing the banks for misleading the public about practices like 0% introductory rates and universal default. The OCC itself has acknowledged that these practices are, as they describe it, very troubling. But notice what they didn't do. They didn't say, and we're going to prohibit them, stop them. Those are unfair practices. They are unsafe and unsound, and don't do them. Instead, they said, it's a problem. Look, if they think it's a problem, then tell the credit card companies to stop doing it. Why don't you simply stop them? Why don't you ban these practices? When we see practices that are potentially problematic, we take a variety of actions. So you could tell them to stop and they would have to. If we had a basis for concluding that a bank was involved in a practice that was unfair or deceptive, uh, if it violated any of the other many consumer protection standards that apply to them, we can tell them to stop it immediately. Whatever the OCC is doing, Pat Wallace says it hasn't stopped the Better Business Bureau from being deluged with complaints. It's not an accident that 
the banking credit card business generates more complaints nationally across the country than any other industry. Now what does that say to you? Out of a thousand industries that we track, they're number one. I'd say there's a problem here. These things aren't an anomaly. All these complaints have some basis in fact. There are irritated, unhappy, dissatisfied customers in this industry, and we see it. The Better Business Bureau tells us credit cards and banking and credit cards together, number one problem. Of all types of complaints? Yeah. I would have thought it was like cable satellite installation no, I guess or you used, guys, used car dealers. Your members apparently are amongst That's. Uh, I would not have thought that, uh, that that was the case. Critics like Elizabeth Warren believe that there would be fewer complaints if the credit card industry clearly disclosed how its business works, particularly when it comes to the minimum monthly payment. If people knew that the cost of minimum monthly payments was that they would still be paying for yesterday's trip to the shopping mall for the next 35 years, some people might decide to pay a lot more than the minimum. And the industry knows that. That's why they don't want to tell. You advertise in your bills what the minimum monthly payment is, but you don't tell people how much that might cost you if you stuck to that minimum payment. Why not? The disclosure would be wrong 99% of the time because nobody, almost nobody, pays exactly the minimum, that minimum, every month for the 20 years and never charges another thing. This is going to be a hyper-technical, expensive disclosure that nobody would understand. So we are against disclosures that nobody would understand and that are wrong. We are for disclosures that help people understand. It's that simple. This is a nonsense argument. In the line directly under the line that says minimum monthly payment, there's a simple sentence that can be added. If you make minimum monthly payments, it will take you how many years, 35 years, and how many months to pay off this bill. The man who takes credit for inventing the 2% minimum payment thinks more disclosure is useless. This is a fascination that every now and then uh, someone with an axe to grind or someone who thinks he's going to help consumers has on his mind. But if we had a tape and we ran a computer on transcripts of 10,000 customer service calls with questions, okay, I don't think you'd ever hear that question. So I'm kind of baffled at the artificiality of it. I don't think that's what consumers want to know because they don't expect to make minimum payments forever. Do you know if you made the minimum payment, for instance, on your bill, how long it would take you to pay it off? I'm not in a hurry to find out. I'm just going to pay it off. Would you like to know? Sure. Curious, yeah. Mm -hmm. It would inspire me to put down more. It would inspire me. And I think that's probably why they don't put it down. It would inspire a lot more people to pay more than the minimum. Well, virtually everyone who holds a credit card one way or the other under existing laws today and provisions can be completely taken advantage of by the credit card industry. So there is a deception going on to get you into the game. Once you're in, and I've got you in, then, then if you get out, I charge you. If you don't meet your obligations, I charge you. You move left, you move right, I've got you. So what are you going to do about it? 
Well, I've got legislation, so i got a bill. There's always a quick answer here, and I don't know how far it'll go because I've tried this in the past. I'm not new to the issue. A good deal of the blame for the crisis of credit card debt we're seeing in America lies in how the practices are followed by credit card companies. In the summer of 2004, Senator Dodd introduced a credit card reform bill that would, among other things, require credit card companies to disclose how long it would take consumers to pay off their balance. But he is not optimistic that the bill will pass. His many previous attempts to reform the credit card business have all failed. Why haven't you or other lawmakers been able to put some regulation into place? Is it their political power? Sure, there's no question about it. I mean, every time we've tried to offer legislation, this industry has become very, very powerful. And, uh, and it, it's very successful in defeating every legislative attempt that's been made over the last several years to inject some responsibility on the part of this, uh, this credit card industry. You critics say that you block every attempt to pass industry reform or consumer protection legislation. You block minimum monthly payment legislation, interest cap rates, and a ban on marketing to college students. Uh, we've done our best to, to block bad bills. Those are bad bills. And we'll continue to do our best to block them. Bad for? Bad for consumers. I want to promise you something today. You know, keep on defeating me, keep on defeating ideas like this, and you'll look back and wish we had passed this legislation. Because I'll tell you, Congress will come along and they'll take steps far more egregious in their view than anything I'm suggesting. I'm discussing disclosure. Just let people know what the deal is. I think there's a time when the American consumer is going to hit the tipping point on this issue, and it's no longer going to be all right for credit card companies once they're in financial trouble to change the interest rates, to load them on with fees and penalties, to just decide that the terms of the contract they originally signed are no longer the terms of the contract. I think that day is coming. Even an industry insider like Duncan McDonald, who worked at Citibank for nearly 30 years, is deeply concerned. I know enough about the industry and the lawyers in the industry, and there have to be people sitting there saying, well, we've got to find a way to deal with this. Have we reached that point? I don't know. But my guess is there's the debate going on. And I hope there's a debate on what a tragedy would be if there isn't. The tragedy would be what? The status quo gets worse. The status quo is bad and then it gets worse. Profits keep to... 25% of bad rates become 30% bad rates and late fees become $50 and $60 and so on. Back in South Dakota, the man who helped the industry take off in the 1980s has mixed feelings about what he helped create. Do you ever reflect on the fact that in this great success, which has been a great benefit to your state, at the same time has helped create a way of borrowing money, spending money that may have gotten out of control? I think the answer to this, yes. I mean, it's, we've become a plastic society. We've become a plastic society. A lot of times when I give people cash, they look at you. Cash? Cash? You were instrumental in making this happen in many ways. Okay, I didn't think of any of this when it happened, and I'm still glad what we, I still like what we did, and I still think it was a huge opportunity for my state. Now, if we're talking about the industry in 18, 19, 20 plus percent interest, do I think that's a healthy thing for human beings? The answer is no. I don't think that's healthy at all.
headed into an economic crash of unprecedented proportions, one which will make the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression which followed look like a Sunday school picnic. If so, can we prevent it? And what can we do to protect our families? Reliable experts say a crash is coming. They also say that there are simple, inexpensive things anyone can do to protect their families, to keep food on the table and a roof over our heads, even in the worst of times. But to do that, we have to understand why the crash is coming, who's behind it, what they want, and how the perpetrators plan on protecting their families. The problem is that since 1864, we've had a debt-based banking system. All our money is based on government debt. We cannot extinguish government debt without extinguishing our money supply. That's why talk of paying off the national debt without reforming our banking system is an impossibility. That's why the solution does not lie in discussing the size of the national debt. Rather, it lies in reforming our banking system. This is the Federal Reserve Headquarters in Washington. It sits on this very impressive address, right on Constitution Avenue, right across from the Lincoln Memorial. But is it federal? Is it really part of the United States government? Well, what we're about to show you is that there's nothing federal about the Federal Reserve, and there are no reserves. The name is a deception created back before the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913 to make Americans think that America's central bank operates in the public interest. The truth is that the Federal Reserve is a private bank owned by private stockholders and run purely for their private profit. The Federal Reserve really, even though it is not part of the federal government, it is more powerful than the federal government. It's more powerful than the president, the Congress, and the courts. Now, a lot of people challenge me on that, but let me prove my case. The Federal Reserve determines what the average person's car payment is going to be, what their house payment is going to be, and whether they have a job or not. Founding fathers knew the evils of a privately owned central bank. First of all, they had seen how the privately owned British Central Bank, the Bank of England, had run up the British national debt to such an extent that Parliament had been forced to place unfair taxes on the American colonies. In fact, as we'll see later, Ben Franklin claimed that this was the real cause of the American Revolution. Most of the Founding Fathers realized the potential dangers of banking and feared bankers' accumulation of wealth and power. Jefferson put it this way, I sincerely believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. That succinct statement of Jefferson is, in fact, the solution to all our economic problems today. It bears repeating. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. We must act. We must take back the power to issue our own money. Issuing our own money is not a radical solution. I want to stress that. It's the same solution used at different points in U.S. history by men like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, and Abraham Lincoln. So, to sum it up, in 1913, 
Congress gave an independent central bank, deceptively named the Federal Reserve, a monopoly over issuing America's money. And the debt generated by this quasi-private corporation is what is killing the American economy. 200 years before Christ, Rome was having trouble with money changers. Two early Roman emperors had tried to diminish the power of the money changers by reforming usury laws and limiting land ownership to 500 acres. They were both assassinated. In 48 BC, Julius Caesar took back the power to coin money from the money changers and minted coins for the benefit of all. With this new, plentiful supply of money, he built great public works projects. By making money plentiful, Caesar won the love of the common man, but the money changers hated him. Some believe this was an important factor in Caesar's assassination. One thing is for sure, with the death of Caesar came the demise of plentiful money in Rome. Taxes increased, as did corruption. Just as in the case of America today, usury and debased coin became the rule. Eventually, the Roman money supply was reduced by 90%. As a result, the common people lost their lands and their homes, just as is about to happen soon in America. The first paper money was merely a receipt for gold left at the goldsmith. Paper money caught on because it was more convenient than carrying around a lot of heavy gold and silver coins. Eventually, goldsmiths noticed that only a small fraction of the depositors ever came in and demanded their gold at any one time. Goldsmiths started cheating on the system. They discovered that they could print more money than they had gold, and usually no one would be the wiser. Then they could loan out this extra money and collect interest on it. This was the birth of fractional reserve banking, that is, loaning out many times more money than you have assets on deposit. So, if $1,000 in gold were deposited with them, they could loan out about $10,000 in paper money and draw interest payments on it, and no one would ever discover the deception. By this means, goldsmiths gradually accumulated more and more wealth and used this wealth to accumulate more and more gold. Today, this practice of loaning out more money than there are reserves is known as fractional reserve banking. Every bank in the United States is allowed to loan out at least 10 times more money than they actually have. That's why they get rich on charging, let's say, 8% interest. It's not really 8% per year, which is their income. It's 80%. That's why bank buildings are always the largest in town. Reflecting church law in the Middle Ages, Europe forbade charging interest on loans and made it a crime called usury. As commerce grew and therefore opportunities for investment arose in the late Middle Ages, it came to be recognized that to loan money had a cost for the lender both in risk and in lost opportunity. So some charges were allowed, but not interest per se. But all moralists, no matter what religion, condemn fraud, oppression of the poor, and injustice as clearly immoral. As we will see, fractional reserve lending is rooted in a fraud, results in widespread poverty, and reduces the value of everyone else's money.
Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, September 14th, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. All righty. How are you today? Can't complain too much. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was afraid something was going to get, the Chimita was going to get me yesterday, but apparently... Not. So far, I'm okay. Oh, good, good. You know, there are a lot of weird things going on out there, and it is just a matter of time until one of these things do blow up, and it is a matter of time just until, you know, something nasty comes our way. And instead of making dates and, 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 and be focused such on that thing, we, we need to view the whole picture. And uh, it, it's because uh, sometimes when you see that People don't do anything, and that's the worst thing that you can do. But we're not going to lecture about that right now. Right now we're going to go into the uh, New York uh, spot price for gold, 1109.80, uh, just barely unchanged for the day. So we're a little pressure, 14.53, down 0.19. Platinum, down 16. Oh, my pen stopped working. Down 16. At 959, and you have palladium down six at 593. The USDX today is trading just a little stronger, 0.05 at 9524. Oil 0.53 down, 4410. And the paper markets today a little bit of pressure on all of those. You have the Dow down 62 points at 16,370. NASDAQ down 16 at 4805. 
S&P down 8 at 19.53. 10-year yield down 2.18%. Euro down 0.16 at 1.13. And I didn't have a chance to look at the foreign markets. Pretty much all unchanged. Japan was down 300 points, uh, almost 2%. But other than that, everything is, is quiet. Everybody is holding on to their breath to see what the Federal Reserve is going to do this week. That is the moment. And uh, A quarter of a point. Well, mm-hmm. I get, I get the, the psychological impact on that. Yeah, but and, shouldn't have that have been factored into the market? We've been well, hearing about thought. that quarter of a point for probably six months now. You would have thought. You would think that the market has adjusted. Oh, my gosh, they might raise the interest rate a quarter of a point. You know, in my opinion, you know, we talked about this before. There, there was a report from the St. Louis Federal Reserve just in the last probably two, three weeks ago now, where one of the vice presidents at the St. Louis Federal Reserve said, look, quantitative easing hasn't worked. Right. Injecting money into the system hasn't worked. It hasn't caused the inflation they expected, and therefore it has not stimulated the economy. It has supported the markets, but other than that, it hasn't worked as anticipated and expected. And he also says zero interest rates or near zero interest rates have been, they were supposed to stimulate the economy by making borrowing costs low. But in fact, he says low interest rates historically correspond to low um, uh, low interest Low interest rates correspond to a, a low, a, a slow-moving economy, a recession. He says if you really want to stimulate the economy and you want inflation, you need higher interest rates. That was his contention. Now, I don't know that the guy is right or wrong, but he is a vice president of the Federal Reserve, and he should know what he's talking about. And if what he's saying is true, and that's just some maverick opinion, it may be that he was letting the world know they're going to raise the rates, the interest rate, and maybe not just by a quarter of a point. It's, ooh, maybe a quarter point, maybe not. No, maybe they raise a half a point or one point or a point and a half and say, look, the economy can handle it and try to generate, and if he's right, maybe higher interest rates will generate higher inflation rates, which will stimulate the economy. But he is correct in this regard. They've lowered the interest rate. It has provided no stimulation. It's provided well, no inflation. I think the, the, I think the lower interest rate did provide stimulation when they first lowered the rates, and it did keep this economy going. And they couldn't raise rates through the, you know, through the recession, the Great Recession, as they call it, and so forth. So lower rates did work. And, I mean, we've certainly seen the amount of debt that has tripled and quadrupled uh, through, uh, you know, through uh, personal debt and so forth. And uh, this is certainly what got a lot of people into trouble. That's what created our problem. And uh, but certainly higher rates is beneficial to retirees and those with any savings because they'll put that money in the bank. Now, if you raise your rates, see what I see is people pulling their money out of the the volatility of the stock market if if the rates go high enough and they'll put it into the banks. And that's what it's really all about. And, uh, um, you know, you'll have these people move the money out of there and they'll put it into the banks and you got the fractional reserve banking and they could, you know, increase blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I think that's sort of the, the cycle that they're on. What I did see, Al, is I was reading an article earlier. I got interrupted, and, and I wasn't able to get back to it. 
But it isn't so much if they raise it a quarter point for here. And I agree with you. I think, you know, they've certainly conditioned the markets and so forth to where they would absorb it. However, you have a lot of small countries that have used that are the, the, the dollar is the reserve currency, and they have used debt based on um, our returns or our interest rates. And it isn't so much our country that might have that major impact, but it's a lot of these little ones, these little work countries, the third world emerging markets and so forth. They will be devastated, and that is what will really trickle down and affect markets. So um, they will be... You know, and they've already been hurt with oil pricing, you know, with the, the drop in oil. So um, but that was the gist of the article, and I, it, it made me think, well, you know, maybe the impact isn't our initial response. I mean, at a quarter point, you might not see that initial response here or Europe, or, um, but you might see it in these smaller countries, which will domino. Well, the lesson in all of this is that the whole system is so fragile. Exactly. All right. It's like you're flying, you're driving down the street with an automobile, and you're scared to death if you hit one bumblebee, it'll shatter your windshield. You know, you should be able to hit a bunch of bumblebees, and it shouldn't make any difference. If one bumblebee is enough to make your window, your windshield shatter, then you can, there's something wrong with your windshield. This is, this is evidence that the whole system is so fragile that a lousy quarter of a point can set it off. The other explanation I've seen on this, the one that actually makes some sense to me, is that whatever the government has borrowed since they started well, the near-zero interest rate, they have certainly billions, probably trillions of dollars borrowed since then at essentially the half percent that that's for near-zero interest rate. If it raises by a quarter of a percent, they've effectively doubled the interest they have to pay on those. It's a triviality, but on the other hand, it is a doubling from quarter percent to a half a percent. I don't know that that's significant, but I've heard some people say that it might be. The whole thing just strikes me as, again, main lesson to all of this, there is something wrong. You know, down in Brazil, they're paying 14.5% interest. And they have high inflation down there, and their economy has problems and the rest of that. But the point is, 14.5% on the Brazilian economy has not collapsed the economy or driven people to all jump off a, a tall building or a bridge or something like that. It's a survivable situation. And down here, we're worried, oh, my gosh, we might have a half a percent. You know, it's one of those things you sit back and look at and say, hmm, this is strange. But we'll find out. We'll know better come Thursday. We'll find out what happens on Thursday. I believe Thursday is the day, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think Thursday. They have, they have the day, a two-day two meeting Wednesday and Thursday. Uh-huh. Well, we'll watch and see. It'll give us something. It'll give us something to to pay attention to. Um, you know, it's like a horror movie. You know. Well, do you think will that will one of them go off all by himself down the? down the west wing of the mansion because if he does you know what's going to happen it's very scary and spooky I mean 
mean, the, the problem is now that certainly, you know, the, the interest on the debt, yeah, that, I mean, you know, that would go up significantly. But the problem is even if you raise the rates and you compare it to Brazil and so forth, and whether it starts at some of these smaller countries and, and their ability to hold the debt and everything is so tied together anymore. It isn't, you might not see, you know, the sky falling in, but anybody who has any savings, anybody who has, uh, you know, a, a lot of paper investments, they're going to get hammered. And, right. and that's, uh, uh, and yeah, people who don't have anything, yeah, you know, they, you know, it's like, well, you know, hey, I get, you know, my check from the government, so, you know, it's okay, but those checks will stop. And, um, but, it, it, this is a, a big system that it, you're right. It, it's just uh, it, it, the glue is uh, not very strong anymore, and well, maybe it's coming it's apart. Strong in a sense, and maybe it'd be a good idea if we got back to you run your nation and I'll run mine. Exactly. All right, and we're not going to have things so interlocked that if something strange happens in Timbuktu, oh my gosh, we're going to have a stock crash here in the United States. In fact, that was one of the arguments. The last week when the stocks dropped dramatically, um, it was blamed ultimately on China because, uh, I don't remember, they had some, we talked about it on the program, they they said because we were just talking about raising interest rates in this country, it caused people to lose confidence in the Chinese market, caused the market to go down to China. One thing led to another, and it caused, that was their theory, it caused the, uh, the market crash in this country. There, it sounded like a Rube Goldberg machine. Um, with one thing, you know, you've got a ball rolls down a chute, and then it triggers some sort of a balance, one dominoes and all, and you get something happens in the end. Uh, if those of you remember Rube Goldberg machines, they may be too old for a lot of people to remember, but I think most of you get that. Where was I going with this? Is, it's just evidence that the system is too complex, too inter interconnected, and it would be a good idea to just rebuild your tariff barriers and say, okay, let's run our country, and if we crash, we know who to blame. We're not going to blame it on China. We're not going to blame it on Europe or something in South America. The cause will be within our borders. And if something happens to Canada or Uganda or China or Uruguay, they know who to blame. And it makes people responsible. When you have this global thing, it gives you an opportunity, if you're in a position of power, it gives you an opportunity to say, well, let's take a shot. What do you say? Come on, let's, let's try it. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. All right, we'll push this button over here and let's see what happens. A lot of people are, I think that's part of the mentality of the people that are in positions of power right now. It's just a big joke, big adventure. See what happens. And they can't easily be blamed because who knows? It's like these flash crashes. Who gets blamed for those? Who is responsible? Does anyone know? They can have a flash crash in the markets. They'll drop the market, uh, markets hundreds of points in a matter of seconds. And then it jumps back up. But who was responsible for the crash? Who was, does anyone know? Trying to weed through the system to say, okay, who pushed button A? It's far it's so complex that you can't even find out who's responsible. All by itself, that's dangerous. You have a system that doesn't have real accountability. Dealing with money. 
you can't be surprised if, 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 if some of your currency disappears. You can't be, who's responsible? Why not steal it? That's what a lot of people think. Why not? Nobody's going to Nobody's going to be able to find out who's really responsible. What's wrong if I help myself to an extra $100 million? Nobody finds out. Well, you know, you had a um, comment in there, and there was an article last week by the BIS, and uh, I thought we talked about it, about the central banks, uh, that they're warning us that the central banks uh, are unable to, to bail us out if there was a significant market de- decline or depression. And... Um, I did a little, I wanted to, on my, one of my other programs that I do on Saturday, I didn't know how many, how many central banks there were in the world. Do you know? Well, no, I don't. Um, there, might, there might be a hundred or more. I wouldn't necessarily do you bet know, on it. There do, you might know be. That, do you know the only major nation that does not have a central bank is North Korea? Is that right? You've got some small island countries, such as the Federated State of Micronesia. They don't have a central bank. But if you count them, more than 99.9% of the population of the world still live in a country that has a central bank. I understand so that there's 180 currencies in the world. Mm-hmm. If that's true, then it may be that there's 180 central banks. Well, 99.9% of the population, the only other major nation on the globe that does not have a central bank, is North Korea. And uh, there's some interesting stats that I got. Michael Snyder always does a a good job uh, on getting the the, the stats on some of these things, and that's where I uh, got those numbers. And um, there were some other ones that he had here. Um, He talks about um, as long as our central bank has been going. Our currency has diminished more than 96%. We know that. And our national debt has gotten more than 5,000 times larger. And I think there was also, and he talks about the invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq. He says, we talk about them, you know, going because they wanted to go to uh, drop the uh, dollar for uh, the petrodollar, but also they did not have central banks at that point in time. Even Libya did not have a central bank. Well, when we so, say li- central bank, what do we mean? We mean a source of fiat currency. Where did we have central banks per se before we got into a pure fiat currency system in the world? Was there a central bank? I mean, I know the Federal Reserve was here since 1913, 1914, and it helped to create the fiat currency. But essentially, when we say central bank, we're saying a source of, uh, we're, it's not like a bank previously that might have had a bunch of gold stacked up, per se. That's an institution that creates fiat currency. I know. Well, that's what I'm talking about. When, when we talk, look about the invasion to Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, they, they did not have central banks. Yeah, I know. During the well, war, they were, they were created. Afterwards, new, new central banks were set up. And what did they have for currency prior to the war? They're backed by gold. Iraq had a gold-based currency. And I assume Iran may still have a gold-based currency. I don't know if they do or they don't. But Iraq had an Old Testament gold-based currency. And I don't doubt that was part of the reason that they said, let's invade, these people are a problem. 
Let's take some commercial announcements, and Melody and I will be back on financial survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. Herbs announces a brand new formula to help balance blood pressure from head to foot, strengthen your heart muscle, and reduce cholesterol. Now you have a professional strength alternative that works all without fear or worry of serious side effects. Empower yourself. Become independent from the expensive drugs. Call Apothecary Herbs and ask for heart, blood pressure, and cholesterol formula toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online at the three W's dot thepowerherbs.com. Heart, blood pressure, and cholesterol formula is just $24.95 and comes with a money-back guarantee. So get a pencil and write this down. Apothecary Herbs, toll-free, 866-229-3663, or on the web at the three W's dot thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Adams here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Program is brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. Here's an article from ZeroHedge.com. The headline is, Dependence on Central Banks is, quote, unrealistic and dangerous, unquote. 
BIS warns. They mean the Bank that's of International just, Settlements. That's what I, I just said. That, but I want to clarify a point. We talked about this just when we were closing down a little bit. And the IRS, or excuse me, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, when they say dependence on central banks is unrealistic and dangerous, they're warning us that we can't depend on central banks to bail us out of the next significant market decline and or depression. It probably wouldn't be, I mean, that's, that's the clear implication. The yes, said, look, look, fine, we had quantitative easing, we had near zero interest rates. We did what we could to get your chestnuts out of the fire the last time. But we're not going to, they're not going to be able to do it again. The central banks won't be able to pull it off again. And I'm going to presume that they wouldn't be issuing that warning unless the Bank of International Settlements felt some sort of significant decline was imminent. I was just saying, well, you're on your own this time, folks. You know, whatever happens. And the implication, we don't know this to be true, but the implication, again, they think something is close at hand. That doesn't mean this month or next month, but close at hand. This quarter, maybe next quarter, maybe even the first quarter of next year. You know? Um, but they, they are warning us that they don't have any more weapons. They don't have any more tools to deal with our problems, with economic problems, and that means it's up to us. You're going to take care of yourself. You are going to have to take care of yourself. You're not going to be able to rely on Big Daddy, Big Brother, or whoever in government to take care of you. That's, that is quite possibly going to fail. Here's another one from Mish's Global Economic Trend Analysis. Just a little headline to comment. The headline is European Border Controls Return. Is the Shenzhen Free Movement Treaty dead? The Shenzhen Free Movement Treaty was negotiated between the, the various nations that have come to comprise the European Union. And it essentially said, once you're in France, you can go to Germany or England or wherever you want to go. That free movement between the nations that are party to the European Union. Well, England isn't, but France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, so on. There's a little bit of regulation and control, but for the most part, once you're in, you're in. You can go anywhere in the continent, the European continent. Um, and what they're talking about, they, they are having a return of border controls. Why? Because Europe is being invaded by a horde of refugees from Syria, plus other Muslims coming from other countries in the Middle East, and they're all trying to break into Europe at the same time. And we've all seen the reports of the boats, and they're coming across from North Africa, to coming over to Greece or wherever. What are they going to do with all these Muslims? Europeans are essentially beginning to reject the influx of hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of Muslims freeing from, fleeing from Syria and or uh, that are invading from other Muslim countries. As European nations restore border controls to prevent illegal aliens from entering individual countries, they're essentially saying, all right, they got into Greece. Greece couldn't defend itself. There's illegal aliens in Greece. All right. But we're not going to let them in anymore into Germany. Now, Germany's been liberal up until lately. They are apparently beginning to close down the doors. Hungary doesn't want any more illegal aliens in there, if I understand. And they're saying, we're going to control our borders. Don't 
you know, you may be dumb enough to let these people into your country, but don't try to send them to us because we're not taking them. So they're restoring border controls. As they do, their international borders are restored. Nationality is, is restored. A sense of nationalism in the sense that people say, I'm a German, I'm a Frenchman, I'm an Italian, I'm whatever. They identify with their nation rather than with the European Union. That will be, there will be a tendency in that direction. Um, Muslim, the Muslim invasion is helping to restore European nationalism and thereby helping to defeat the forces of globalization and even the New World Order. Now, that's interesting to me, and it's ironic to me, and the uh, problems that we see in the Middle East causing aliens to or refugees to flood out of the Middle East and into Europe. Um, who knows? Maybe there's a silver lining in all of this. Maybe it will cause Europe to re- say, wait a second, wait a second. We can't just let everybody come in here who wants to come in. We're going to have to be sensible about this, which, one other point. All of these Muslims that are coming from Syria to Europe, why didn't they go to another Muslim country? Why don't the Muslim refugees go to Saudi Arabia or Iran or, uh, who knows, Yemen? Right? Where they would, in theory... Their Muslim brothers and sisters would welcome them. Why do they insist on going to Christendom, Europe? I'll tell you. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to your explanation. Because the Muslims are already there. The Muslims have already infiltrated Europe. I mean, there's a very large volume of Muslims in Europe. I know. And so they're going to where they've already have established... Um, areas to which they can go and automatically be accepted. And no, they're not automatically accepted. My point is I don't think they'd be accepted in other Muslim countries. Other Muslim no. countries say, you Muslims, too bad for you. You're not coming into our country. I don't think so. The only think... people that will take care of them to any degree right now are Christians, and what they want to do is ultimately outnumber the Christians so they can behead them. We're seeing evidence that Europeans are perhaps beginning to regain a sense of nationalism. They might even, it may be too late, but perhaps they're going to start defending their own countries and their own cultures. It and isn't that the Saudi Arabia borders and respect their own culture, and it's important, in my opinion, that they do. It isn't that the Saudis don't want them. It's that they they want them there so they can do exactly what you said. And the the Muslims are already there in Europe. They've been there. They infiltrated northern Europe a long time ago. I can remember in the 90s people telling me who visited certain places and told me that if if you weren't in by uh, dark, the chances of you being murdered by one was very high. This was in the 90s. Um, When we were in London, I don't know, three, four years ago, that was the biggest complaint. Uh, Buildings, property, real estate is being bought up by all these uh, uh, Muslim backgrounds. And that was the biggest complaint. And uh, so, you know, they better, but, you know, I think it's probably a little, a little late to I be. I agree. I think that's, I think it's late, certainly late for Europe. 
just like what they're doing, going, trying to do here. You get some of these Muslims into their parliaments and so forth. The next thing you know, you, you push through a little Sharia law, and there you go. And uh, people don't have, aren't any more wise to um, what has been done to them. There's a bad mentality in Europe, and it's also pervasive in the United States, where you don't have to respect your own culture. You don't have to protect your own culture. You don't have to protect your own land. Just open it up, and we're all going to sing Kumbaya, and that's a bunch of crap. We are not all going to sing Kumbaya. Well, I don't you think... get caught where you are a minority in another country, and you are vulnerable. You've got a different system of values. You've got a different color skin. You've got a different culture. It will make you vulnerable. And what we're doing is allowing illegal aliens to pour into this country, and it won't be, a, it won't be good for us. Europe is worse. They're gonna, Europe is going to be lost because the Europeans are too liberal, too progressive, too nice to fight for their own property and realize the need to fight for their own culture. They're going to regret that. Before this is done, they're going to regret it. And maybe they're beginning to catch a glimpse of that now with the, with the illegals, uh, with the refugees that are pouring into Europe at this time. They're beginning to say, uh-oh. It doesn't have anything to do with that. They see that the people over there are just as poor as what we are over here. You know, the only ones that are doing well are the bankers, the elite. They're mm-hmm. the ones that are doing good. And now they're seeing they're being pushed. They're bringing these people over, governments, bringing them over by boats and uh, dumping them off in Europe like we talked about in Greece. And uh, people say, well, you know what? I can't get any money from my government. Now my government's going to be giving these people money. That's my money. So it's all about money. It doesn't have anything to do with culture. I mean, that's all. But it does have to do with culture because you're bringing people in that are incapable of really making a productive contribution. They don't want to make a conductive. I don't think they can because of their culture and also their genetics. What we've seen with the Muslims is a couple of studies came out in Europe in the last 12, 18 months, 18 months probably since the first one came out, where legitimate scientists, they just calculated the genetic damage that's been done by the Muslims, by people who have been members of the Muslim faith for several centuries. Because Muhammad married his first cousin, Muslims are inclined to do the same thing. And there is a strong impulse. And as a result of this impulse, oh, I'm going to marry my first cousin, they have become so inbred that they are no longer capable of serious thought. They can't see as well in the dark. Um, They are more prone to mental illness, to birth defects in their children. It's part of the reason why the Muslims who were responsible for discovering, creating algebra, for example, they made all sorts of brilliant discoveries early on. But they've become so inbred that the, that that particular faith has been impaired in a way that is not going to be repaired by just saying, okay, I'm not going to marry my, my first cousin. Well, too late. After several centuries of marrying first cousins, the Muslim community is already off balance. If they didn't have oil over there, who would feed them? They have become a race of parasites to significant degree. Hey, They've we didn't have government handouts here. Who, we didn't have government own... payouts here. Who would feed them? Well, I understand. <laughs> you know, it, I don't think they're bringing them in there so they can, 
you know, become part of Europe. They're bringing in oh, them in there to enough. destroy Europe. That's exactly right. And Europe sits there and pri- tries to play nice and refuses to see what's happening. Oh, they know what's happening. Well, they don't want to face it, though, because if they face it, they're going to have to fight. The problem with Europe is Europe has this thing about getting involved in conflicts. Ever since World War II, they're afraid to fight. And they don't want to, they, oh, no, we don't want to fight. We'll wait for the Yankees. We'll wait for the Americans. Maybe they'll do our fighting for us. We'll find someone. Or we'll just sing Kumbaya or something. They're fools. And it's a shame. It's a shame. Europe is going to be lost. And then what's going to happen? You know, there's a lot of culture in Europe. There are a lot of edifices in Europe. Cathedrals be one example. Maybe artwork, another one. What do you suppose the Muslims are going to do if they get if they become sufficiently populous? Will they preserve those cathedrals and some of that artwork, or will they make it their business to destroy it? A lot of things are going to be lost. A lot of things are at risk right now. If it were me, I would not. You see the pictures of the Muslims and oh, the poor mom. She's got her three kids and she's look just looking for help and the rest of that. I get that. I would tell them go home. You're going to have to figure this out and begin to understand that your problem is your culture. Your problem is your system of values. Your problem is your faith. And you're going to have to make an adjustment or you're going to perish. You want to cling to that faith? You want to cling to that culture? Go ahead, cling to it. But don't come trying to impose it on me. I know it's dumb. I know that it will not work. It hasn't worked hardly anywhere in the world in the last several centuries. The only way they again... Yeah, they happen to have a bunch of oil. They didn't have that. They'd, they'd be just chopping each other's heads off. That's all. They need, people need to sit down and say, wait. You know, if Muhammad was truly a prophet of God, why did he set the example of marrying his first cousin? Why has that example been picked up in the Muslim faith? Why do the Muslim people, they've become so inbred over five centuries or more. They've become so inbred that now they're impaired. And again, oh, stop marrying your first cousin. It doesn't matter. You have now you are now genetically impaired. You will remain impaired for several generations. This isn't gonna just go away. Why if Muhammad is was a true prophet, if Allah was legitimate God, and the Muslim people were his number one people, why did Allah let the Muslim people become genetically impaired? It's an incredible evidence that this religion is mistaken, it's false. If you want to join that religion, that's your business, but you're getting into trouble. You're headed in a bad direction. And why, why bring them in? They're not going to be assimilated. They won't assimilate into the European culture. It isn't designed for them to. I know. It's for the I know, but the ordinary people said, well, it's been sold the ordinary people. will. They don't have a choice. They just bring them in and place them, pretty much like they've done to us. They bring in the illegal aliens, and they place them. There's illegal aliens. There's there's cities. There's all these cities and cities, these states. They get, you know, funds from the government and so forth. cities. Yeah, I know. I've seen reports, one report, we talked about it maybe last week, but one report claims that 
51% of the illegal aliens in this country are here on welfare. That's just insane. If you want to come here to work, that's fine. If it was up to me, I wouldn't allow welfare for anyone who hadn't become a full-fledged citizen, including learning the English language. And I don't know how long, I don't know what the citizenship process is, but it's not 60 or 90 days. I think it's something like five or six years to become a full citizen. All right, after the five or six years, if you can make it here in this country without welfare or government support for the first five or six years, fine. You're welcome to be a citizen. But if you're coming here and just saying, well, where do I sign up? You know, where do I get my welfare? We don't need you. And there's no reason why our government should bring these parasites into this country and say, oh, we'll take care of you. It's the humane thing to do. If the humane thing to do is force the Mexicans to confront the fact that their government is corrupt from top to bottom. They're run by an oligarchy. They're the reason people are coming here is because Mexico cannot provide for its own people. What do you need? You need a shooting revolution. That's what Mexico needs. It doesn't need a valve where they can ship their disaffected and young and people who can't get jobs and ship them up and let the gringos take care of them. What they need is put a lid on it, hold it down tight, let them have the pressure cooker, and make put them in a position where they're going to have to figure out what's right and wrong and what's best for them and fight for it. And if they do that, they might be improved. And if they don't do if they're not improved, well, fine. Leave them, in there, leave them in that pressure cooker. That's a harsh way to look at things. But the problem is, if you're just going to take every illegal alien that the world can produce, they're going to swarm into this country and into Europe like locusts. And they will consume everything that's there. And when it's all gone, they will swarm to the next, maybe South America. Maybe they're next. Or Africa. Or who knows? But these illegal aliens aren't making a contribution. Some of them are. I can't say that all of them don't. But on, and from my perspective, on average, they're not making a contribution. They are consumers. Right? They are what Henry Kissinger described as useless eaters. Change. Go back to your own country and fight for freedom. Right? Don't come here. Don't come here to just hustle the Americans, the gringos. And let us pay your bills. And what, we're just crazy to allow that to happen. It's self-destructive. We might just as well take needles and stick them in our arms and get stoned. It's just as stupid as allowing the country to be invaded by illegal aliens. Huh. In any case, uh, Melody, did we miss our commercial break? Mm, not if you allow it to go on right now. Well, let's do it. Let's, let's break for a moment or five, and Melody and I will be back for the last segment of uh, Mantle Survival. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now 
for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Folks, I'm Alfred Addis here on Financial Survival with Melody Cedarstrom. And what's next, Melody? Well, there was a uh, report that came out today: federal debt held by the public totals more than 13 trillion, or about 107,000 per household in the United States. We know that's more than that, but this is just based on the public totals of 13 trillion. Uh, the report was titled "Washington's Largest Monument: Government Debt." And uh, certainly our debt has doubled over the past seven years. And um, they, they talk about it costs taxpayers $3 to provide a benefit worth $1 to recipients. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, it's just more, just confirmation. It's insanity. More, and it is. Insanity. It's crazy. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. Say, look, you've got to get a job. We can't afford to spend $3 to give you $1. It's crazy. We're going down the pipe in order to support a bunch of people who can't support themselves. And soon we're going to be among them because we won't be able. You can't keep spending $4 to give $1 to somebody else. You're going to go broke. Huh? You know, one of the things we talk about confidence in the, in the economy and the system, whatever. What are we really confident in, Melody? What do you think they really have to maintain confidence in? You tell Any idea? Well, I do, but you tell us. I'm sure it doesn't match yours. It's confidence that the debt can be paid. We live in a world where the currency is a debt-based monetary instrument, and we will accept these worthless pieces of paper as if they were a payment. They're not, but we will accept them so long as we have confidence that the debt that is represented by that piece of paper will somehow, some way, be paid. We are confident that the debt can be repaid. But you were talking about there's $100,000 worth of debt for every, for every household in the, in the country right now. That isn't going to be paid. That's not going to be paid. Don't when you have an extra hundred grand laying that, around, Al? Well, not that I'm willing to give the federalities. <laughs> <clears throat> We've got a call from George from Toronto, Georgia. Are you still here? I'm here, Al. Listen, 
Thanks, Dave. Yeah. You know, we got to be careful about calling these these leaders in our countries insane, okay? Because when it comes time to put these these bastards on trial, we're not going to let them get off the hook by them pleading insanity, okay? <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> okay. Now, my main question I had for you was, um, the, the the banks, most of the banks around the world are on this um, fractional reserve banking system, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. Do we need fractional reserve banking to run a banking system? Yeah, we probably I mean, do. Isn't the purpose that they espouse for that is so it'll like growth? It's a way of growing the the system, and the I economy. Think, and I think they're correct. I understand that fractional reserve banking poses a danger to us the way it's being operated. But I also understand that if all we did, if you had Let's say you've got $50,000 and I've got 50000 Melody's got 50000 and we put it in the bank. And the bank charges us interest to store our $50,000. But that money is taken out of circulation. The bank has the whole $50,000. I deposit fifty grand in the bank, and the bank keeps my $50,000, and i got to pay them X number of dollars per year to keep my money in their safe. But all of my 50000 has been pulled out of circulation. And if they take 50 from me and 50 from you and 50 from Melody and they keep on doing that, the money that's in the bank, there won't be enough money left to run the economy. We pull the money out of circulation. How do you get around that? You have to. They have done formulas and whatever, and they say, well, we know if he deposits 50000 odds are he won't want more than 5000 back at any one time. So we can loan out 45000 and if that's all they were doing, I'd say it's a good system. I would say if it's not a good system, it's a necessary system because otherwise there's no money left for the money supply. We have to get let some of that money has to come out of that bank. All right? And the fractional right. reserve banking makes it makes it makes that possible. But the way they've run it, they've amped it up and amped it up until if I put fifty thousand dollars in the bank, they don't just loan out forty five thousand. By the time they get done, I don't know how much but it just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies in ways that become ultimately irrational. It gives us a good high and uh, a hot economy for a while, and everybody thinks we're getting rich. Right. Sooner or later, the whole thing blows up. Uh, it's a yeah. strange thing, and I don't know that there's a good answer to this. No, well, I'm glad the way you explain things. Though. You're, I learned so much from this show. That's why I tune in every day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the compliment. No, it's sincere. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask, do you think that there's any chance of the system changing to a, going back, well, <laughs> for the U.S. to go back to a, you know, gold-backed and silver-backed uh, currency? Yeah, certainly there's a chance that it can happen. I'm sure that the powers that be absolutely don't want it to happen, but... If the existing system breaks down, what else are we going to do? I they know. Can't like, what do you We haven't heard a word about him. Is he, afra- is he afraid to bring up the topic? Does he know Who? about the topic? I didn't, hear, I didn't hear the name you said. Trump. Donald Trump. I don't know. I don't know what Trump knows or what he doesn't know. Uh, well, yeah. these are issues we should be discussing. You know, you but can't I don't. get 
get these guys to ask some questions, you know? Yeah. they got so many handlers around them. Maybe Trump doesn't, but, you know, most of these politicians have handlers around them. You can't get close to them, you know? Well, I understand. So you know, one of the things that should be done, in my opinion, one of the yeah. big problems with our Constitution is they only allowed for 435 people to be congressmen. They've got 100 senators, but another 435 to be congressmen. And the result is, you divide the population 317 million by 435, and I don't know what the result is exactly, but it might be something in the neighborhood of 500,000 people per congressman. I don't know if that's true or false. I'm just just guessing off the top of my head. We should have one congressman for every 50,000 people in this country. Maybe even one for every 20,000. I think that would be too many, but something like one for every 50,000. Then he would be forced to represent his little constituency and do what was right. If he lived in a mining community, he'd have to do what's right for the miners. And if he lived in a community that were loggers, he had to support the loggers. But when you, when you have one representative representing perhaps, I don't know, 100,000, 500,000, I don't know what the math is on this. He doesn't know what we're doing, and we are so diverse. Our interests are so divided, and, and that he can he can do anything he wants. He, he oh, I agree with that. But the thing is, when you do that, Al, you are increasing the size of government. Just the things that well, you're say. increasing. Yeah, but you know what else you're doing? You are increasing the probability that the congressman. The loggers are not going to agree with the, what the miners want, and the miners won't agree with the people that are manufacturing boats. And the net result is we'll have a lot less legislation. Oh, you know, instead true. of having 400 or th- 435 congressmen, suppose we had 2,000. It would be far harder to control those congressmen. Right now, they're pretty much they're easily controlled by the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. I don't mean perfectly, but relatively easy. Got just a few handful of these people. You'd have way more mavericks. You'd have way more independence. You'd have way more people that were going to do what they thought was right, even if they were crazy. They'd have some idea. This is what I think is right, rather than this is what I think the party wants me to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, right. I won't say it's a perfect solution or even a good solution, but it would be a change that might be good. I mean, the way it is, who really believes it's working in the best interest of the American people? Oh, Obama wanted change. He gave us change. Yeah, I know. Change, <laughs> not just that you can believe in change, you barely, you can barely stand. I know. You know, it's no better uh, up here in Canada, you know. It's a sad sack they got running for, for prime minister, let me tell you. <laughs> Wasn't it just anyway, announced that cat... Wasn't it All right, George, announced? thank you. We appreciate your call. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Hmm. Wasn't Melody? it? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Wasn't it just announced that Canada is now in a recession? So they're not doing very good up there either, up north of us. So what They need are more illegal aliens. That's the solution to Canada's problem. If I were president, <laughs> I would build a bridge, a high bridge that just goes from at one end <laughs> <laughs> at the border with Mexico, 
and the other end, discharge at the other end into Canada. And then we would just, you want to go? Fine. You're going to Canada. Just walk right over the top. See? Mm-hmm. That would be my infrastructure solution to these problems, Melody. Yeah. Uh, so what do we got? Two minutes left. Yeah, I just want to give an update on the silver, folks. If you're looking for silver, you better get in there. Um, as of Friday, there were no more silver eagles being purchased. Uh, we just been informed during the program that the uh, Perth uh, rounds, uh, the spiders, the one-ounce silver spiders, they are. We are out of stock on that. The uh, Austrian kangaroos that we were selling, 250 per box. Uh, we'll have a little more details, uh, perhaps. Uh, Later on, we still got a few of those available. Canadian maple leaves uh, are now back on the market. So right now, it seems like they're about the only silver. I'm talking silver. I mentioned silver in the beginning. Uh, The Canadian silver maple leaves are about the only game in town uh, for those. So you know, folks, don't wait to see if the premium is going to go lower because, uh, or the price of silver is going to go lower. As it seems like the price of silver goes lower, premiums go higher. And you end up paying for the same thing anyway. So in product, uh, you're not getting the selection. So um, make sure if you're looking to get the silver in your portfolio, give us a call at 800-375-4188. We'll keep you posted uh, on the availability of products. There's been rumors circulating that um, perhaps the mint is uh, stopping production because of the turnover from uh, 2015s to 2016s. That's kind of much rumor. Haven't had confirmation as yet from the mint that this is the case. Um, so, you know, until you actually get confirmations, I don't pay much attention to rumors. But um, last year they did stop production. I think it was uh, the middle of November. They did stop early last year, and it was. But we didn't have the same type of demand as we do this year. So, um, again, don't wait, folks. Uh, get positioned and um, get positioned so you can get shipped. And we do have Morgan Silver Dollars also for immediate delivery, but you got to give us a call. But there's a lesson in all of this, and that is supply appears to be running short. Well, they can't keep up. Does, Demand. If it does run short, I mean, prices have to go up. And one other thing, if I were running the, if I were running the United States Mint, oh, and I was responsible for minting silver eagles or gold eagles, One of the reasons why I would stop minting those coins is if I had secret knowledge that the prices of those metals was suddenly going to jump dramatically, I'd just sit back and say, well, I'm going to sit on our coins and our blanks, and we won't make any more mints until the price rises. Until the price rises and we could get fair value for whatever coins we're selling. We're out of time. I want to thank all of you for listening. We will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer, and George Toronto. Bye-bye, folks. See you mañana. I work all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me.
heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Show. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.